Another time then. Yes, of course. <laughs> so, uh, Stefan, my general idea for this was, you know, you know, it's one general topic about capitalism, but we've got to bifurcate into the source of human wealth and what exploitation is. And my thinking was that we'll kind of tackle those separately. Um, and um, for the most part, you know, uh, like the only things we really have here is, you know, um, you know, no insulting, keep it like, you know, civil or whatnot. I, I've seen both of you guys before. I don't think there'll be an issue. And then just, uh, you know, basically, you know, kind of, you know, don't interrupt each other, be kind of fair on time. So, you know, um, if you got a lot of long points, you know, let the other person make a lot of stuff. But, you know, for the most part, I think you two got, you know, are going to be fine with that. So my plan is to largely stay back, guide this very loosely, and I'll only really step in if things get heated. Does that work for you? Yeah, fine with me. Works for me. All right. So, uh, you know, the first topic here uh, that we have is the source of human wealth. Uh, Vosh, would you like to tell us where you think human wealth comes from? Sure. So it's a really vague question, which I like. Um, there's a lot of openness to be found there. What do we mean by wealth? Are we talking like material price? In which case there are myriad market factors that play into it, you know, incredibly complicated, God knows, depression, recession, or boom, what something might be worth. Um, I think when I tend to think of human wealth, I tend to think of a more generalized, you know, accumulation of all of the industry, all the ingenuity, all of the material possessions, the labor-saving devices, the artwork that a individual company, country, civilization has accumulated. And um, through all of these different you know, variants of wealth, there is one underlying cause, which is, um, inex you know, inescapable and inextricable, and it is labor. Uh, human labor is what drives wealth. Even if you stumble into a diamond mine or find oil bubbling to the surface of a field, you know, those things are valuable on their own, of course, but the process of mining, the process of refining, of advertising and selling the product, of consuming, of building machines to use these things, of deriving a use value from these objects, all of this stems from labor. And it is for that reason, I believe that when we credit the wealth of a civilization, of a country, of a firm, of a person, we should elevate those whose labor has brought that to pass. Um, in some civilizations, you know, this has been slaves, um, more so than any other group. And in, you know, our civilization today, that is the common worker for the most part, the people who labor and toil to provide services or to produce goods, to mine, to work, to strive, to produce art. These are the people who I believe build wealth. Okay, and the same question to you, Stefan. All right, so uh, the source of human wealth, you kind of got to answer two questions. And you can say, well, sure, human beings are necessary for the creation of wealth. Yeah, okay. I mean, you, that sort of doesn't add a huge amount to the equation, in my humble opinion. But what I would say is we actually have a very good explanation as to where wealth comes from. So the first thing that you need to do is you need to explain why there was so little wealth throughout almost all of human history. And then why you sort of look at that line of wealth, right? Uh, almost human, all of human history, people were surviving on virtually nothing. Starvation was rampant, uh, even in civilized areas uh, like the Roman Empire. You could have feast or famine within, you know, five miles of each other. So why were we so poor throughout almost all of human history? And then you get this massive, I mean, to call it a, a exponential is an insult to exponent, exponentiality. 
massive increase in wealth since the 18th century, first in agriculture and then in industrial production. So what changed? What was the difference? That's the first thing that needs to be sort of explained and understood. And the second thing is that we also need to explain that when you get more free markets, when you get the allocation of uh, or the earning of goods and services and the control of goods and services by those who are best able to maximize their use, why is it that we get this pretty wild income disparity? And it's true in general that the rising tide lifts all boats, but boy, it seems to shoot up some pretty high and some much slower. So the answer to that is uh, pre- pretty easy to understand if you are familiar with you know, Austrian economics, that kind of stuff, right? So the first thing is that there are some people, and I sort of hate to put it in this way, but they're magic. They are magicians of productivity, and nobody knows exactly why. It's like saying, why is a particular singer or a particular baseball player, I mean, why are they so good? Why are they so popular? It's a mix of skill and charisma and hard work and, and all of that and resisting temptation. But some people are just magic when it comes to the creation of wealth. Now, if you want a wealthy society and you have free markets, which is the only way to get a wealthy society, then what happens is those people tend to end up accumulating more and more resources. So if you can get twice the crops out of a particular piece of land, you're able to bid a lot more to own that land. And because of that, you get massive increases in agricultural productivity. And the, uh, there's a very well-known, or it's a somewhat well-known equation for this. It's called uh, Price's Law, and it's common throughout human beings. It's common throughout the animal kingdom. Uh, it's common in just about every meritocracy that you will look at. And it goes a little something like this. The squ- in a meritocracy, like where you can earn and profit and compete, the square root of the number of people involved in an endeavor produce half the value. So if you have a company of 10,000 people, 100 people of those, 10,000 people produce half the value, and of those 100 people, 10 produce half the value. So in other words, you have 10,000 people, and 10 of those 10,000 people produce fully one quarter of the entire value. Now, why is this the case? I don't know. Nobody knows, but it doesn't really matter because it's a reality we have to deal with. So in a free market, those who have this magic ability to just create, you know, Steve Jobs like the opposite of uh, Elizabeth Holmes like, they have this incredible ability to create wealth through passion, through creativity, through organizational genius, uh, through converting uh, uh, to a, a Model T assembly line, as Henry Ford did for all of his other considerable faults. So there's these magic productivity people, and in a free market, they tend to accumulate the most resources. And uh, they massively increase the wealth in society, and that creates a lot of resentment. And then people say, aha, those people only have money because they've stolen from you, and then they run to the government to steal it back, and everything kind of collapses Venezuelan style. And that explains why, when these people were inhibited from exercising their productive genius in the free market throughout most of human history, we remain poor. You can see when the free market began to occur in the 18th century, particularly in England and the Netherlands, you can see when the free market began to operate 
in the realm of land that you had more and more productive landowners taking over land, the bourgeoisie of the landowners, so to speak. They elbowed aside a lot of the aristocrats, and you got a massive increase in food, like sometimes 10 to 20 times the food productivity as occurred in the early Middle Ages was occurring in the 18th century. We're talking winter crops, crop rotation, turnips, like you name it. It was just incredible what people were able to do with the productivity of the land because they were able to compete they were and and land was sorted according to who was the most productive in a market mechanism so that is the source of human wealth is letting the free market determine who gets generally to bid the most on the resources and that's the people who can make the most use out of those resources the most productive use out of those resources and if you allow that process to occur then more and more People get wealthier and wealthier in society as a whole. And the last point I wanted to make is it's a pretty temporary situation, right? Because we, uh, we don't like, and you know, I'm sure Vosh doesn't like, and I don't like it either, this idea of this sort of hereditary economic monopoly. But the reality is that uh, the people who tend to be uh, very wealthy, uh, it really, really doesn't last at all. So uh, if you have a family wealth... About 60% of the time, that wealth is gone within one generation. It's been blown. It's been frittered. You know, this rags to riches to rags story that's very common. Or they say shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. By the second generation, fully 90% of the money is uh, gone. So these geniuses, they appear like like comets or I guess more like uh, meteors in the night sky. They flash. They burn bright. They burn out. And other people come along to take their place. And there's this constant churn of, of classes and wealth. But in general, it's a rather bumpy but significantly linear upward bump of wealth. And that's the genius of the free market. And that's how it serves humanity so beautifully. If left to operate uh, with the enforcement of property rights and in opposition to the initiation of force. All right. So um, just a quick note here, um, chat, I forgot to mention text, so if you guys are uh, – you won't be able to talk, of course, but you can uh, type, uh, you know, discuss this as it's going on in the debate chat. If you want to invite your friends, the invite code is just Blue Politics. We've got another 100 minutes, and I'm going to mostly step back now. Uh, Vosh, if you want to just go ahead and start with your um, response. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need some time for this. So this is a pretty standard, like, Randian great man explanation, which – and the great man theory, I should say, is, is widely discredited. In, okay, uh, listen, I, I hate to interrupt principle. right at the beginning here. Let's do each I, other I a favor. Hang on. I'll, be, I'll just be a sec. Let's just do each other a favor. Let's not characterize each other's arguments. That's such a waste of time, and it's so boring. Well, this is a reductionist and blah, 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 and it's a Randy and this. And just, let's just both go back and forth with the actual content of the debate rather than <laughs> wasting everyone's time characterizing what we think about and how standard it is and where it comes from. Let's just deal with the points, okay? Because life is short. The point of being able to identify what type of argument a person is making is so you can tie their arguments to academic arguments that have taken place in the past. If we, if we reduce all discussion down to he said, she said, or he said, he said in our case, um, then we can pull essentially anything out of our ass that we like. What this is essentially is great man theory. And I don't find this to be a particularly effective descriptor of, well, frankly, anything. Um, so we, we begin with your description of the um, why wealth suddenly ballooned upwards um, during the uh, uh, 18th century and has since then our wealth has, has you know, increased tremendously since that point. Um, and I would argue that the reason for this is not because the, the the government suddenly took their hands off the reins and allowed these these Ubermensch 
to walk society and do as they would, which drags the entire productivity of the you know nation upwards. I would argue it's because of the Industrial Revolution, which is, um, uh, I think, far more descriptive because we saw equiv- uh, equivalent increases in productivity um, uh, 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 pretty much across the board. Um, in countries that had high levels of economic freedom, in countries that are despotic and totalitarian, the effects of the Industrial Revolution seem to near ubiquitously increase the wealth and productivity of society, no matter what policies they have um, uh, uh, concerning individual property rights. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I believe that capitalism hasn't had an impact on the development of wealth in our societies. I think it has. I think it's um, and just absolutely a, a head and shoulders improvement above uh, feudalism or above um, mercantile capitalism. But the idea that um, capitalism's effectiveness for whatever percentage it is responsible for the increase of human wealth is because of these 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 great men, these these people who. Um, who, who stride head and shoulders above the, the, the peasants who contribute more. Um, I just, I just, I don't see that. Um, in none of the research I've engaged in, none of the analysis uh, I have seen done of firms or of countries, nothing I have seen has shown me that the entirety of the productivity we see from any level of society is done by a small elite core of do-gooders who preside above it. It is, in fact, uh, the tireless work of everyone who participates in that system. Uh, it is through that that we are able to reap the benefits um, of an industrialized society. After all, um, a, the process of invention, you know, to create, say, for example, a new factory machine, this is work. It is labor. The person who has done this is a worker. Um, to operate that machine is likewise work. Whether you believe there is some, you know, differential in the relative levels of productivity between those who create and those who simply operate machines, that certainly does exist. But I don't believe there is so great a difference between these people that you can find strong explanatory variables uh, uh, as to why um, our general level of civilizational wealth is increased just because of uh, the existence of a few highly privileged individuals. In fact, your argument that these people are shooting stars that emerge quickly and then burn out quickly is an argument that these people were never that great to begin with, that instead a uh, incredibly complicated system of complexities and circumstances conspired to bring them to a position of relevance. And then, you know, eventually history does to them what it does to everyone. Uh, which is it brings them down. Um, altogether, I just um, I, I do feel as though this the, your explanatory uh, uh, sense for this the 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 great man. I I just it feels very um, disheartening or, or or like cucked to me. I guess would be the best word I have for it because what it is essentially telling most people is that in spite of their um, incredible level of individual talent, productivity, whatever, if you're not at the top of society, you just weren't cut out to make it. It's a it's a system that justifies uh, the placement of one man above the other, and that to me is the absolute opposite of freedom. And that's why I uh, I stick to a more materialist analysis of civilizational wealth. Wow, I uh, I would really like it if we could get a debate going, but it looks like uh, I'm going to bring facts, reason, and evidence to the table, and you're going to say you don't like the outcome, and you've never heard that argument before. So, okay, it, well, friend. then what I guess I'll ask you if we can get a bit more back and forth going. Um, why do you think, let's say, Brad Pitt, and, and by the way, it's not a great man theory. 
because uh, that's very, very sexist of you. I mean, there are lots of women who've contributed enormously <laughs> to, the, um, to the economy as well. And, of course, you pointed out Ayn Rand, a great novelist and philosopher. But um, why do you think... If, if everyone's equal and it's just the amount of labor, I mean, I've made a movie, but I've made a number of movies, a number of documentaries I by now. Hang on. I don't think uh, I've made a bunch equal. of movies by now. And why do you think that the leading man, like the star or the leading woman, whoever it's going to be, let's sort of Brad Pitt or whatever, why do you think Brad Pitt gets paid more than the sound guy on a movie set? So to clarify, I don't think everyone's equal. There are obviously individual differences between people. Some people are far more productive than others. I just don't think that the uh, uh, the reason why our society experiences such high levels of income and social inequality is because those on top are these, you describe them as magical people. I think magic is as bad an explanatory you know, gesture we're going to get for any social phenomena. But the reason why Brad Pitt is paid more is because he can negotiate for more. In a free market, you know, he's a front-runner star. People know him. His um, addition to a movie will bring in more customers, uh, his relative market value. Okay, okay, okay. So, so, sorry to interrupt. So that's interesting. So you've given me two explanations there, which seem somewhat contradictory. And it's really, really interesting. This is kind of, I think, at the core of the issue. So you're saying that Brad Pitt makes more, like he makes like, what, $10 million a film or something like that. He makes more than the sound guy simply because he negotiates better. In other words, if the sound guy had Brad Pitt's agents, the sound guy would also be making $10 million a movie? Or is it because, because the audience prefers better. Brad Pitt, he's more singular, he has more of a monopoly on Brad Pittness, so to speak, than the sound guy who's kind of interchangeable? I will agree that Brad Pitt does have a monopoly on Brad Pitt, but I don't think it's because he negotiates better. It's not the skill of negotiation that matters here. It's no, but because you did say negotiation is why he's paid more, right? Yes, he's in a better position to negotiate, or his agent is in a better position to negotiate, because past circumstances have led Brad Pitt to be more marketable than some random sound guy. I mean, the sound guy is not even in the movie. Well, he's in the movie in the sound, right? I mean, well, he, well, yeah, if he yes, wasn't he there, the, the sound would be pretty bad. But he's not in. No, the but film. why? Why do you? I mean, past circumstances doesn't explain anything. Um, so, why do you think that Brad Pitt gets paid? I don't know, like a hundred times more than the sound guy. The, the, the same reason any popular person can be paid money to speak at a university, because more people are interested in seeing them. Ah, okay, good. So it's not the labor that determines his income. I mean, there's many, many people who work harder, so to speak, and invest more labor in the film than Brad Pitt does, right? He kind of bungees in for the shoot. And a lot of times movies have been in preparation for a year or two before Brad Pitt might come in for a month or two. So there's people who put, put out far more work into the movie, but paid far less. Uh, and so this idea that labor is what's driving value is falsified by the movie star example, because many people work much harder who get paid a small fraction of what Brad you Pitt does for less arm. work. You said that Brad Pitt is being paid more because his labor is worth more. And then you just switched to saying that was my argument. I don't think his labor determines how much he's paid. I think his market value determines what he's paid. I agree. Brad Pitt probably works as hard, probably quite a bit less hard than your average stagehand. I mean, that's tough work. I've been on sets before. It's, it looks very difficult. Um, you know, certainly for the sound guy, it's pretty heavy equipment they got to carry. Brad Pitt has a lot of lively comforts I'm sure they don't get to enjoy. I don't think that labor is an explanatory value for one's wage or the price of their you know services i think an explanatory value for what it gets produced in society for what is worthwhile in society well it's because people like to watch brad pitt and so it's the customers themselves who determine the value of the contributions in other words if you and i let's say we're just hanging out and we say hey let's go a movie let's go see a movie right 
and let's say we're just complete manic sound aficionados. We're just crazy about the sound guy, right? And there are people who are like this. There are people who will go and see a movie just because some guy wrote the score. And he's like, oh, that guy's amazing. But most people are like, Brad Pitt is really cool. He's a good actor. He's handsome. He's got abs for days and all that. So they'll go and see the movie because Brad Pitt's in it. And so Brad Pitt is a good investment. Like, it's not that he costs $10 million. He makes the movie like $50 million because he sells $50 million worth of tickets that wouldn't be sold if he wasn't in the movie. So Brad Pitt is paid a 100 or a 1,000 times more than the sound guy because people will go and see the movie for Brad Pitt, but they don't really care about the sound guy. Now, if there was no sound guy, the sound would be bad and the movie wouldn't work, but it's a lot easier to get another sound guy than another Brad Pitt because there's only one. So it is the end customers who determine the value. And I don't know how you end up with, well, there's no such thing as disproportionate or wildly disproportionate economic value when Brad Pitt is paid 1,000 or 10,000 times more uh, than, say, an extra. Well, that seems like quite a, uh, a spike in income. And that's all determined by the customer. It's not determined by the negotiation. It's not determined by the bosses. It's not determined by the director or the studio. It's fundamentally determined by the customers and how much they want to pay Brad Pitt. So a few things. For one, uh, I never said that a person's like price or, or, or wealth or income or earning is determined by their um, is determined by the labor that they produce. That's determined by a wide variety of market factors, which you have just you know explained. I do want to correct you on one thing, though. Um, it's not actually the customers that lead to his wage. It is the fact that he and his agent are willing to negotiate for a wage that they believe that the studio would be willing to pay in light of what the customers would bring for additional revenue to the movie. There are a wide variety of complicated economic factors that go into this, but none of them are that Brad Pitt is a magical Superman who strides atop all the other production staff in the movie set and is singly responsible for all of the value in that movie. It could entirely well be that somebody else who was born in circumstances similar to Brad Pitt could have ended up being the Brad Pitt, or, you know, with some different name, of course, but a similar level of popularity. And it has nothing to do with any uh, uh, genetic or circumstantial or magical component of their birth. It's just a product of circumstances that has placed Brad Pitt in a position of prominence that allows him to negotiate for his wages. But when it comes to what builds civilizational wealth, what truly builds society and drives it forward, it's not popular people who get popular because they have a good agent or because they have a good PR team or because they got lucky. It's the hard work of millions or billions of human beings. Well, yeah, but I mean, this, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. People have been working hard for about 150,000 years since we first hived off from the apes. So people have been working very hard, uh, gruel gruelingly hard, gruesomely hard. I mean, if you look at ancient skeletons, a lot of them are like bowed down by the amount of work. Their joints are shot because they had to run all that. I mean, people worked like crazy throughout most of human history, but something changed. Like 200, give or take, 200 years ago, give or take. Something changed to the point where we got this 20, 30, 40, 50 times increase in human wealth. And I'm, it's not just because people decided to work 50 times harder. Human beings were working about as hard as they humanly could throughout most of human history and something changed. Now, I would argue what changed was morality, was morality. What changed was there was a move for a variety of both intellectual and economic and political and historical reasons. There was a move towards a lowering of barriers for trade, a 
respect for property rights and contract and a general diminishment in the random violence in society, whether you put that down to the fact that there were executions of sociopathic prisoners for <laughs> hundreds of years or whether you put that down to the Black Death or whether you put that down to, as some people do, and I think it's a very good theory, that parenting improved. And when you stopped brutalizing your children as much, they grew up to be more empathetic and less prone to aggression and violence. But something changed to the point where property rights were more respected, barriers to entries fell, and uh, violence also diminished within society. And those three things, right, barriers to entries falling and property rights being respected and contracts being enforced and uh, a diminishment of violence in society, that allows for the intellectual meritocracy to begin to harness nature's scarce resources and energies and become massively productive. And that is really the source of wealth. It's not just the fact that people move their arms. They've been doing that throughout all of human history. The reason wealth productivity went up during the 18th century was because of the Industrial Revolution, because people invented machines, built factories, built conveyor lines, automated and processed the labor, you know, uh, refinement, built steam engines and coal plants and, you know, revitalized global trade. There are a number of factors. But why did they do all of that? I mean, the ancient well, Romans knew about the steam engine. Uh, the ancient Romans knew about really uh, cool stuff that they could have used the to create the revolution. Industrial Revolution, but they didn't. Why? Because they all owned slaves. It took the shattering of serfdom. It took the shattering of the ancient practice of human well, slavery we had the uh, in, in, in order to. I'm sorry. Wait, wait. Americans own slaves when the Industrial Revolution took place in America. You can simultaneously own slaves and develop an industrial revolution. They couldn't have de developed an industrial revolution back during the Roman times. The technology just wasn't there. Oh, no, I that's not true. No, no, that's components. not true. No, this looks like, I mean, I don't mean to pull credentials here because it's all nonsense. I got a whole history of Rome presentation, graduate degree in history. Oh, no, no, there was a lot of technology well in ancient Rome. Rome. They could have done Rome. it, but they didn't want to invent labor-saving devices because they had invested all of their capital into slaves. So when you invest your capital into slaves, you don't want to create labor-saving devices because it diminishes the value of your slave. Each slave costs about the equivalent of a medium-expensive car in, in the modern West. And so there were very strong political and, and economic reasons to do with the immorality of slave ownership that had to do with why. Now, there were slaves, of course, in America, and the North industrialized faster, got wealthier faster because they didn't have slaves. And it was the British, uh, and uh, in, in particular, the British, the British Empire that worked feverishly uh, in the late uh, 18th, 19th century to end slavery, not just in England, not just uh, uh, in the British Empire, but around the world, worked very, very hard and, and like would grab the slave ships and free the slaves and, and lock up the slave owners and, and worked very, very hard. It was largely a Christian mission, of course, but it worked. they worked very, very hard to end slavery. So the fact that America had slavery, while America inherited the Industrial Revolution to a large degree from England, which was largely serf and slave-free by the time it started, and uh, the industrialized North uh, had a far greater economic progress than the slave-owning South, so I don't see how the example of America does anything but reinforce the thesis. Okay, so a number of points here. For one, there have been plenty of labor-saving devices that were invented over the time when slavery was commonplace in civilizations across the world. The printing press, the cotton gin, numerous inventions which were meant to make agriculture easier, a field that slaves almost exclusively um, were, were presided over, of course, you know, uh, back when agriculture was, you know, the industry of the day, you know, medieval Europe. There is, there is, there is certainly a relationship between the development of the industrial revolution and the existence of slaves. But the idea that, uh, that wait, Rome sorry, the existence had, or the diminishment of slavery. Uh, 
well, both, I suppose, the, the diminishment of, because I agree there is a there is a proportional relationship between the industrialization of society and the reduction of reliance on slave labor. But the idea that Rome could have just decided to do one, and then it took us 2,000 years to decide, actually, what if no, machines No, but that's not what I said, Vosh. I didn't say Rome just could have decided to do it. I said that they had slaves, which you just admitted. Uh, the, the diminishment of slavery was essential devices. for the development of uh, industrialization. So it's not just a decision arbitrarily. It's based upon the foundational morals and economics of the ancient world, which was slave-based. Civilizations have had slaves, and they've had labor-saving devices for as long as both have existed. When the Industrial Revolution took place, the material wealth and the productivity of our societies increased massively. But it wasn't because everyone just decided that it was moral to start doing so. It was because of the incredible ingenuity of inventors and the hard work of the people who manned those factories that civilizations pulled themselves into the industrial era. I reject this assertion that it was a, a moral um, uh, you know, zeitgeist or a moral paradigm shift that led to the overwhelming increase in the productivity of human beings. All right. So l let it just be noticed that Vosh has said that he just rejects it. Okay, good. That's Well, I reject your rejection and <laughs> we've completely solved the problem. You just have to say, I reject, I reject. Okay, so... Well, I provided a counter argument. If you no, you didn't. You just said that there were machines in the ancient world. Well, of course there were. I mean, uh, you could have carried water or you could have had an aqueduct. You could have uh, dragged things along through a forest or you could have built a road. Of course there was labor-saving devices in the ancient world. So what? I mean, the fact is there still was not this massive liftoff and takeoff of human wealth. And for that, you require the efficiency, the idea that it was the laborers within the factory that produced the wealth when laborers in the fields before, the slave laborers in the fields were working even harder than the factory workers were in the Industrial Revolution and for, of course, less pay because they virtually got no pay. They got room and board and some rudimentary health care, and that's about it. So the idea that it was human labor that somehow drove it is to say, well, I guess they just worked 10 times harder than the slaves did and they didn't. No, no, no. It's nothing no. to do with that. The it fact is that when labor starts – hang on. Start. I'll finish in a sec. I'll finish in a sec. When labor starts to cost money rather than you just buy a slave and then you buy and burn that slave until they – you know, I guess you don't even want a pension. You just burn them out till they, till they die – but when labor starts to cost money, then the first thing you want to do is start investing in labor-saving devices. And that harnesses and extends and expands the power of the laborer. The economic efficiency of the laborer is vastly enhanced by being attached to a factory machine that does a huge amount more work for him. And so when, no. you, when labor costs money, you start saving money by introducing labor-saving devices. That frees up labor to do other work that is more productive and adds to the value of society as a whole. So again, to clarify, labor-saving devices have been invented as quickly as the people of their time could for as long as humans have been around, including the time when we owned slaves. While it is, there is undeniably a relationship between the economic value of a labor-saving device uh, relative to the availability of free labor, that doesn't negate the fact that humans have tried to increase the efficiency of their society for as long as has been possible. And I take issue with this, this spurious straw man you keep assigning, where you describe the Industrial Revolution as simply workers choosing to work harder. It was workers... I never said workers. In, I, that, you, you, wait, you're accusing wait, me of a straw wait, man. Wait, I never on, said Stephane. workers choosing to let work me, harder. What are you talking about? Isn't that a phrase said, I even used at all? You, you just said that my argument was that workers must have started to work 10 times harder to account for the increase in wealth production during no, the that was No, that was a mocking of your argument. That wasn't my argument. You'll need to try and uh, keep up. Okay, well then to clarify, it has nothing to do with workers suddenly choosing to work harder. And everything I to never do with said workers, workers suddenly choosing I, to work I, harder. Please, what are you talking about? Stephane, 
I, I am addressing my own argument and clarifying my position. Well, then so why are you clarify, saying it's what I said then? I think you mischaracterized my position. Well, okay, here, so here's, just, here's what we should so, do. Here's uh, what we well, should do. If you want to take we, issue we, with we something I said, like here's it. my suggestion. Here's how we use our economically productive tools, right? I don't know if you can see me or not. You got a pen, you got a piece of paper, right? So what you do here, what you do is if I use a phrase that you want to take issue with, which is obviously perfectly fine, that's the point of a debate, you can jot down the phrase because I'm telling you, man, relying on your memory is not working because you keep <laughs> saying I, I said things that I never said. I watching to remember you as you said it. And if my chat would like to rise up and say that he did indeed characterize my argument in that way, you are all free to. But until that point, I would like to say that it has nothing to do with workers just deciding to work harder and everything to do with some workers who are inventors uh, or, or, or politicians, which is in itself a form of work, um, who developed the labor-saving devices of the Industrial Revolution, which then allowed the workers, working as always, to increase the productivity of our society. It has nothing to do with people choosing to work harder. It has nothing to do with a moral paradigm shift. It has everything to do with a change in the material circumstances of our society and how it allows our workers to increase their productive efficiency. We continue to see this today. The existence of the internet has revolutionized the material efficiency of our society. This has nothing to do with a moral paradigm shift. It's simply new technology allowing for us to create and distribute in new and inventive ways. Always, of course, this is being done by people who work. And it is for that reason I credit them for the bountiful society we now find ourselves within. Okay, so you've accepted that the end of slavery helped make workers more productive, but you don't consider it a moral paradigm shift for slavery to have ended, so I guess you don't view it as an improvement in human morality for slavery to have ended? I'm not quite sure I follow I don't think people abandon slavery for uh, uh, machinery as a more efficient form of economic production for moral reasons. I think they did it for material reasons, because you can make more money from a factory than you ever could from a plantation. Um, of course, this is somewhat simplified. You know, the actual particularities of economics are incredibly complicated. But generally speaking, the Industrial Revolution de-emphasized the necessity of slavery. I don't think that slavery is a good thing. I'm glad it's gone. But I don't think we made that transition for moral reasons. Why don't you think the transition was made for moral reasons? Uh, because in I mean, every sorry, society and to, sorry, sorry to ask a question and just interrupt. I get that there's pecuniary advantage in in getting rid of slavery. I get that it's more efficient and all of that. But uh, to say that there, I mean, are you saying there were no moral considerations in the uh, abolitionistic movement? The, oh, in the abolitionist, abolitionist movement, certainly. But they weren't doing it for economic reasons. The people who built the factories weren't doing it because they knew they would be replacing slaves and that would be freeing the slaves. The people who built factories wanted to make money. The abolitionists weren't doing uh, abolitionist work for the benefit of their economy. They were doing it for moral reasons. They, of course, had a moral incentive. But factory workers, or sorry, factory owners, the, the inventors who built these machines and, and, and industry lines, I don't think they did it because they knew their machines machines would allow for the emancipation of slaves. Okay, now I'm really confused because you said there was no moral considerations in the ending of slavery. And now you're saying that the abolitionists who largely drove the ending of slavery had significant or foundational moral goals and moral concerns. So I'm really lost now in, in Varshland, I'm afraid. You'll have to give <laughs> me a compass to, to lead me out of the woods. Through. Plenty of moral reasons to the end of slavery. I don't think the development of the machines necessary to create the Industrial Revolution were done for moral reasons. I thought they were done for material reasons. Well, that's exactly that what I said, though. Indirectly. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. I mean, we're, we're 
you're, you're completely agreeing with my point, which is that you get rid of slavery, and then the labor costs mean that you want to invest in labor-saving devices, which drives productivity of labor far beyond anything slavery could have ever achieved. So, yeah, you got the moral goal, you get rid of slavery, and after slavery is gotten rid of, and of course, uh, now there was there were some ugly things that occurred as well. It's easy to look at history and say it's, it's kind of ugly at times based on sort of modern considerations, which I accept and understand, but there was, of course, a lot of... Um, uh, you know, the enclosure movement, kicking people off ancestral lands for both good and bad and in different reasons and so on. There was some negative stuff in it for sure. But I think that we can say with and I think we both agree that there were moral considerations that had to exist prior to the excess labor that drove uh, and the costly excess labor that drove the Industrial Revolution, you had to get rid of slavery in order to build wealth. And that, to me, is one of the foundational moral aspects of the market and the foundation of wealth. And this dichotomy between, well, the, the, um, the factory owners didn't build their factories in order to end slavery. Well, yeah, of course, you'd have to end slavery before there's even an incentive to build a factory – but the reality is, of course, that you don't require – this is the wonderful thing about the free market. You don't require moral considerations in order for the actions of everyone involved in the free market to benefit mankind. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it would be great if everyone woke up as you do, as I do, as a lot of these listeners do. They woke up in the morning and thought, gosh, how can I best serve the world today? How can I best make the world a better place for people in harm and people in suffering and, and all of that. It would be great if people woke up every day and thought that way. Uh, some do, a lot don't. And the good news, of course, is that in a sort of communist system, in a, a tyrannical system, the people who want to profit, they do so uh, on mountains and rivers of blood, whereas in a free market economy, the people who want to profit can't force you to buy their goods and have to appeal in some way and in some manner All right, we are, to that we are, which benefits you. We are so you. off the original topic now. I would like to return and perhaps conclude this, this, this uh, tangent on the Industrial Revolution. So to be perfectly clear, um, the Industrial Revolution took place because material, not moral circumstances, allowed for a massive increase in the productivity of, productivity of civilization. This change in our productivity did change the economics of slavery, which upended many of the slave-oriented businesses um, that existed alongside and even after the Industrial Revolution, because, of course, the Industrial Revolution, Revolution took place before the abolition of slavery in many places. What's more, slavery continues to exist. Exist. To this day, across the world, we saw other forms of exploitative labor come alongside the Industrial Revolution, such as child labor, such as workers being stacked in tenements, spotting out eight or nine babies because they knew that at 12 they would have to send them off to the factories because it was the only way to afford their company-owned tenancy. Um, the idea that the Industrial Revolution was part of some moral surge towards the free market and individualism and propertarianism is ridiculous. Because the Industrial Revolution had comparable effects in societies that, haven't, that hadn't seen the free market touch them for a century afterwards. The Industrial Revolution had the exact same effect on Soviet Russia as uh, few and far between the rights for workers were there at the time. They nonetheless saw a comparable increase in the productivity of our society because it has nothing to do. And I need to make this perfectly clear. Nothing to do 
with the free market, with a moral decision to uh, uh, evolve into, uh, you know, laissez-faire economics and everything to do with material circumstances of society changing. Labor-saving devices have been produced for as long as humans have been ingenious enough to produce them. Slaves have existed since the beginning of humanity up until now. These are parallel but not intersecting courses of material and moral considerances, or, or sorry, considerations, and merging the two of them uh, uh, errantly, uh, uh, um, carelessly only serves to dilute an understanding of the actual driving forces of history. All right. Well, that's a long description without any particular causality. Now, of course, the effects of the Industrial Revolution had had impacts on non-free market or less laissez-faire societies, of course. Of course, because things that get invented in the free market, shockingly, can be transferred. There's not this magical force field between borders that all the things that are invented and created, the, the knowledge of better farming and winter crops like turnips, the, the steam engine can magically pass from one country to another, even if the second country is not particularly free. I mean, believe it or not, you can get internet in North Korea, even though North Korea is a, a post-communist society and a, the largest open-air slave pen in, in human history. So yes, of course, uh, you get uh, wonderful things invented in the free market economies, and they can themselves transfer to non-free market economies. I don't really think the that you pointed that out much uh, of any value there. Yeah. Productions have been produced in free market societies that other non-free I'm sorry, can you just, I missed the beginning of that. I was uh, talking. Uh, can you go ahead? I'd be happy to. The idea that all uh, labor-saving devices and all uh, economic productivity is produced by free market societies and then aped and copied. Well, I'm by sorry. When did I say all? When did I say all? Is, I'm sorry. All without exception, no matter what. I mean, come on. Don't be. There's always complexities, and these sometimes it goes both ways. But when I say free markets generate goods, which again then cross into non-free market societies, I didn't say all goods. And every you find one exception, and the whole thesis falls to the ground. Come on. I mean, let, let's. No, actually, Let's try and deal with each other as nuanced and intelligent people rather than these ridiculous absolutes. Spurious and ahistorical idea that all of the uh, developments in wealth production in non-free market societies, which invalidate your argument that these are fundamentally a derivative of the free market, came from osmosis between borders with free market societies. The truth of the matter is, it's entirely possible for the wealth of a society to be built up tremendously by a totalitarian society. China right now, which is by no means communist, but I also wouldn't fairly describe as a free market, is ballooning in economic and social productivity, in spite of the fact that me, uh, much of the, uh, the the ability to to trade as a, a firm within China is limited by the CCP's sort of central tenets of, 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 you know, economic behavior. In spite of that, they grow tremendously. The truth of the matter is, and sometimes this hurts for folks to learn, but freedom and productivity aren't necessarily one-one ratios with each other. We have to fight tirelessly to ensure both of them. But to assume that they're both intricately tied is to assume all productive societies are free and all unproductive societies are unfree. And that is not true. There are many free societies throughout history that have at you know the same time been materially deprived. And there are many ludicrously productive societies that have been tyrannical. So um, if I just jump in real quick, um, just to try to pull this together, um, I'm going to try to you know, summarize you guys' arguments as best I can in a single sentence. And just tell me first if I'm wrong, but I think this might help us Move closer to the uh, the topic here. Uh, Vosh, you believe that the source of human wealth is primarily labor, and Stefan, you believe it's primarily innovation. Is that correct? No, I believe that the source of human wealth is uh, 
property rights, self-ownership, and a freedom from violence. Uh, that, that the moral imperatives to not use force to get what you want, to respect self-ownership, to respect personhood, to respect property and contracts, a universal validity to promises and property and the sanctity of the human body, uh, that is the foundation of wealth. And it results from a moral commitment to universal moral values, to ethical values that are universal and to um, uh, opposing the initiation of the use of force. And uh, I think Vosch's argument is something like a mysterious ahistorical asteroid hit the Earth and we got wealth. I may be paraphrasing a little bit. (laughs) Something like that. Very slightly, Stefan. Clean your ears out, my friend. I've said pretty clearly wealth is created by labor. Whether that labor be the factory worker or the inventor that produces the machine the worker is on, this has been the case in every society throughout human history. Um, After all, inventors are themselves laborers. But yeah, no, there's just no, um, there's there's absolutely no deterministic social or or historical force that means that property rights and a respect for, for violence lead to the the, or I'm sorry, a prevention of violence leads to the material wealth of our society. Singapore, South Korea under its fascist regime, the Soviet Union back when it was around, uh, China today, uh, Saudi Arabia. These are societies that have enjoyed massive economic and productive booms with, let's say, a tenuous um, relationships to the pr- principles of free markets and you know human rights. Okay, that's um, great. Let's 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 deal with those those countries. I agree, now. it is great. Hang on, no, no, New that's that's, that's, that's a great argument. Now we have something we can we can discuss. Okay, so South Korea. If you compare and contrast South Korea, which is a relatively free market system, at least compared to North Korea, and you see that South Korea's wealth is 20 to 30 times per capita North Korea's wealth, well, we can see the effects of relative free markets to a communist system. Of course, remember North Korea, not referred to these days, of course, was founded specifically as a communist system. And so if you look at the difference between South and North Korea, you have here a twin study, a twins study, the most robust form of comparing situations and environments known to mankind, because you have a genetically virtually identical population. You have one system that's relative free market, relative uh, property rights, relative rule of law, relative contract enforcement. You have another system that's communist, and you can see the outcome. With regards to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is wealthy as an effect of the wealth of the West, because Saudi Arabia stole the, uh, uh, the, uh, the oil-producing companies, the oil-producing machinery, and the oil-producing technology from the West. And this is why Saudi Arabia's wealth followed its theft uh, after the Second World War of Western technology, Western companies, and Western expertise. After the West had been tragically weakened by the horrors of the Second World War, a lot of the Arab states jumped in and nationalized and stole basically all of the Western stuff. And so, boy, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's, a, <laughs> but it's like calling a thief wealthy because he's stealing from people. That's not really the same as actually having a free market yourself. And the wealth that Saudi Arabia is able to gather, it gathers uh, because the wealth, uh, the, the wealth of the West is enough to, to purchase stuff that the Arabs, to a large degree, not completely uh, stole from the West. So I don't think that uh, this really goes against the arguments which, uh, uh, of the free market that I put forward. Would you like, which examples of, uh, of yours would you like demolished first? Would you prefer North and South Korea or Saudi Arabia? I feel that that's a bit of a rhetorical question. It is. I'll do, I'll do both. So 
South Korea had heavily protectionist policies up until the 1980s. The idea that the free market was what led to their sudden economic boom following the Korean War is ludicrous. What's more, they had a fascist government for a large portion of that time, you know, U.S.-backed, installed as an alternative to what happened to North Korea. The circumstances that have befallen North Korea are incredibly complicated, but the idea that the differential between North and South Korea's relative levels of success is that one of them has had free markets and one of them hasn't is ridiculous. There was such an enormous uh, enormous multiplexity of issues, uh, a historical, social, economic, that divide these two countries and have continued to divide these two countries for the past 70 years, which makes comparisons between the two of them on a, on a, such a singular, Do you have any actual arguments as, or do you just say ridiculous and it's complex? I mean, so come on. Responding to an argument with, is that an argument rhetorically, is not the same as rebutting my argument. I'll ask you, let me finish. That's with the case of North and South Korea. With Saudi Arabia, I don't know what you mean by they stole their wealth. They, I mean, they traded for it in the free market. What are you um, talking they about? Were able to no, 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 no. They nationalized Western countries, uh, sorry, they nationalized Western technology and Western companies and Western capital equipment uh, after the Second World War. They, they, so they, they were stole able it all. to, not using the, not using, uh, uh, the uh, free market, develop a tremendous amount of civilizational wealth that currently plays them, uh, you know, in relative levels of, of, of like per capita income, enormously above what you would expect of a society of their, you know, um, de uh, development level. And they did it not using the free market policies that you claim are the central basis for all social and uh, 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 material development. So there are a lot of ways that a country can become super duper wealthy and very, very material. Well, and a, a man can get wealthy by kidnapping your children. That doesn't mean that he's yeah. using free market uh, or it's, it's a moral thing to do or they're using – and he, his, his wealth relies upon you having the money to ransom your wealth. children. So, yeah, <laughs> I think I'm going to stay I with mean, Saudi Arabia is not moral. a free market We're just country. We're talking about what builds wealth. You're the one who's making the claim that wealth is built fundamentally or at least a huge spike in wealth since the Industrial Revolution has been built by the existence of liberal economics in the free market. And I'm saying that's just ahistorical. It doesn't correlate to the developments of dozens of countries um, across the world. It's not okay, the explanatory Okay, so when variable. I say – so let's say, just for instance, so when I say that free markets require a respect for property rights, you somehow bring in Saudi Arabia <laughs> with its massive theft of Western technology and expertise really and companies, yes. you somehow bring that into the free market and its respect for property rights. No, I said they don't have a free market. And in spite of that, they have grown very civilizationally wealthy. They're a counter argument to your point. No, they're not. Okay, so you just admitted that they are not, um, you know, advocates of the free market, so to speak. And yet, if, if I could Google right now, you know, um, Saudi Arabia economic stats, I think we would find that in spite of that deficiency, they have uh, propelled themselves to a pretty impressive position. And I would argue that is, of course, because of the tireless work of their incredibly exploited worker base, um, who is, you know, essentially, you know, at the behest of a totalitarian theocracy, but they are nonetheless workers and they are the ones that produce the wealth. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's where the wealth comes from. All right. Let's see here. Um, sorry, just uh, let's uh, we we've gone far afield from my original, which is good. This is a rambling kind of thing. Uh, and uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, they depend on oil as the country has the second largest proven petroleum reserves, the largest exporter of petroleum in the world. Did they develop all of that technology and knowledge and expertise themselves, do you think, uh, Vosh, or did they get it from somewhere else? 
I don't see how that's in any way relevant to my claim that you don't need free market economics to build a high level of civilizational wealth. Well, I guess I'll have to. I'll have to. I'll have to. I guess I'll have to connect the dots for you then. (laughs) Drop a few breadcrumbs to lure you into the cave of knowledge. All right. How do you think? Hang on. Let me let me just finish because you know I want to make this. I want to make this point. All right. All over the place. So. If you if you don't invent something yourself, but you're dependent upon the free market to invent it for you, then you kind of are dependent on the free market for the source of your wealth. In other words, if Saudi Arabia did not hang on, let me finish my point, and then I'll I'll be quiet. Let me finish my point. So, if Saudi Arabia didn't develop all of this uh, oil extraction technology, the petroleum engineering, all of the wonderful machinery and complexity, and and all of that. If they instead stole it from free market developed economies, then they they kind of are dependent on the free market for the source of their wealth. So let me clarify two things. For one, I addressed this argument earlier where you cannot simply hand wave the enormous material success of societies that do not have free markets by saying that they just got what they had from other countries. For two, stealing is a valid way for – not moral, mind you – but a valid way for civilizations to accrue wealth. The British Empire did this for like a millennia. Many of the civilizations that we you know, uh, laud today, uh, yours, uh, maybe – I don't – Canada did some stuff, I'm pretty sure. America, certainly. We stole enormous amounts of wealth from all over the world, and that contributed to our civilizational wealth. Again, I'm not making moral claims here, only factual ones. And finally, the the fact that Saudi Arabia nationalized the industries within its borders, and that is how they seized control of, so to speak, the means of production, albeit for the royal family, is not an argument that they couldn't have developed those facilities themselves. In every case, this is a legitimate example of, without the impetus of the free market, a society managing to develop enormous material wealth. Also, the idea that just because they nationalized a few oil fields 45 years ago, therefore means that all the wealth they've enjoyed since then is exclusively because of the the refineries that they only were would have been able to steal and couldn't have just built themselves, I think is fairly ridiculous. I don't think it's a good explanatory you know, uh, uh, variable for why they're so wealthy. So if I might just ask like a question here, again, I, I don't I want to be mostly out of this, but it, it seems like a, a better way to phrase this would be whether or not a free market is better at this kind of innovation. Fosh, do you think it's well, no, just hang on, hang as on. good? Uh, sorry, oh, just okay. before Go we ahead. put a bookmark on that, because I do want to get back to this communist argument that, 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 you know, we all know this one, like there's a fixed pie in the world. And if one country ends up with more slices of pie, it's because it stole slices of pie from other countries. And uh, of course, there is theft. And I, I am a, a, a voluntarist. I'm an anarchist. I despise and dislike the existence of the state in any way, shape or form as a predatory mechanism, which violates property and personhood on a regular basis, both domestically and overseas, in horrifying, complex and multimillennial manners. But come on, the wealth of the West was not primarily stolen. And we know this because the wealth in the West is far more than the entire GDP. What on earth is that background noise? The, the, well, the wealth of the West is far greater than the entire GDP of the world 200 years ago. So there's no conceivable way that the West could have stolen uh, all of that wealth. And of course, the reality is that as far as roaming bands of gangs stealing things from each other, that's been a constant for 150,000 years of human history. So the idea, again, we go back to this thing at the beginning where human income was flat, human wealth was flat for almost all of human history, and then you get this incredible spike over the last 200 years. That's not the result of people just being better at stealing. That is the result of the free market because theft has been a constant factor in human society throughout all of human history. 
Okay. Who's got so that background one, noise? I, just by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's kind of distracting. Oh, I apologize. I was typing down a, a few of the points to make sure I didn't forget. Sure, sure. I'm thanks. taking your I'm taking your advice. Thank you. Uh, I'm a millennial. I can't write with my hand. Okay, so there are a couple things here. I have no idea what communism has to do with believing there's one pie and different civilizations have different slices of the pie. It's pretty well known economically and politically that it is not a zero sum game that different parties can benefit. I don't know why you're arguing as though I said that stealing is the is an explanatory factor for civilizational wealth. I'm only saying it is a way that civilizations have built upon their wealth. And your idea that um, the, the great civilizations of the West today didn't build uh, a tremendous amount of their wealth off of theft is is frankly ridiculous. Colonialism fueled um, the American, the English, the French, the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the Spanish empires for an incredibly long length of time. I mean, if we could go over, I don't have these stats in front of me right now, but if we could go over them, they are the, the amount of wealth that they were able to pull in, raw materials, labor exploitation from, from their colonies was unbelievable. And critiquing colonialism is by no means a communist exclusive venture. Um, but yeah, no, just stealing is a thing civilizations do. Again, it's a counterargument to your point that the free market and the magic of individual success is the explanatory factor for the huge increase in civilizational wealth. Um, also, I, I can't, I just, I can't help but notice, it seems like every time we, 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 I, I get you on something, you jump to a different topic. Like before we were on like the Saudi Arabia, North and South Korea. And now you jump to the idea that like communists are saying the wealth only got their money from stealing, which I never said. So no, you, you, just, you hang on. No, no, this is, not, this is not me jumping around, brother. Come on, don't be ridiculous. It's not me jumping around at all. You brought up this argument that the West in part gained its wealth through colonialism. And I'm just pushing back. This is not true. So that is a colonialism, colonialism, like most government programs, it was a government program, colonialism was brutal on the working classes of Europe. I mean, you probably know these stories as well as I do, that there used to be these, uh, my brother actually had one of these when we were kids. It was a, a stein with a glass bottom. And you say, well, why on earth would you want a beer stein with a glass bottom? Well, the reason being, of course, that the, the British government was so hungry for sailors to go around preying on the planet and, and, and attacking other countries that they would drop a coin into a guy's beer at the bar. And if he took a drink from it, he was considered to have accepted the king's coin and he could then be kidnapped, imp impressed, they called it, and, and sold, well, not sold, but, but kidnapped and put into the Navy against his will for an indefinite period of time. But of course, the same thing occurred uh, with just about every empire from the Roman Empire backwards and, and forwards. So colonialism was a map coloring exercise for the ruling classes. It did not make the country's wealthier at all. It benefited certain particular individuals who were very high up. It's like the Federal Reserve of its time, you know, like this money printing machine of monstrosity benefits a few people at the top at the expense of the working class. But the idea that the society as a whole became wealthier during colonial times is, well, you can see particular people became richer, those who got the kind of anti-free trade monopolies and charters from the government, yeah, they got kind of rich, and that was a violation of free trade and property and all of that. But the average person, uh, taxpayers lost money on colonialism, the taxes would have been far lower without colonialism, and they lost their lives, their freedoms, their, their futures, uh, everything 
with uh, colonialism. It was a, a monstrous uh, behavior uh, on the part of the state. And so the idea that this suddenly generated a massive amount of wealth. And the ar- argument against that, of course, is that if colonialism was so profitable, then why on earth did all the European powers, after they had exhausted themselves to near decrepitude after the First and Second World War, why was the first thing they did was give up all their colonies? I mean, if, if, it's so, if it's so wonderfully productive and profitable to have colonies, why didn't they just use that to replenish their coffers? Because they lost money on those things in aggregate. So I, I would expect somebody who wrote a book called The Art of the Argument to understand what an unsound argument is. So first of all, um, that colonialism was hard on European people has literally nothing to do with any point that I was making. I'm sure colonialism was difficult for European people in a number of ways. It went on for centuries. I'm sure it introduced a lot of strange economic pressures that uh, that that were quite hard in the peasantry of you know the countries that were doing the colonializing. Second of all, it was by no means just a state's endeavor. Most colonialism took place under a system called mercantile capitalism, which means trade uh, firms would work alongside the crown um, to uh, colonial uh, you know colonize colonize uh, different countries. This is where we get stuff like the East India Trading Company. Mm-hmm. This is where we get stuff like the, you know, all of the... Uh, yeah, the, I talked the about all that and just what, and what I just said. I talked about right, all exactly. that. So, so, so this wasn't a state project. This was in large part pre pre-capitalism corporations working alongside state mandates to a uh, towards a specific um, collective economic end. Oh, so it was sort run by all. the state, but it wasn't a government program. Okay, yeah. No, it wasn't run <laughs> it by the state. The state. got it. Whoa, 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 whoa. My friend, your ears, get the eggs out of them. I said that they worked alongside the state, not that it was a state Nobody works project. alongside the state, come on. I mean, the state yeah, is the monopoly yeah. of force. It's the one with all the guns and cannons and bullets. I mean, nobody works alongside the state. If you, if the state is like the one that grants no, these no, monopoly okay. charges to these, these countries, full, these I companies. I can't do a full history lesson right now, but if you want to go over it, you can find that there were actually very wealthy people who of their own independent violation chose to start firms to work alongside the crown without any guns being pressed to their head. It's called mercantile capitalism. It's not just a state project. This is highly ahistorical. What's more, your argument that colonialism didn't benefit society at large, it built uh, just benefited the wealthy. That's the case for all societies. Every civilization that has ever existed, with the possible exception of some incredibly small anarchist communes, has had a wildly disproportionate amount of wealth and, and uh, uh, um, material productivity directed towards the ruling class of that society. That was the case in Rome. That was the case in Greece. That was the case in medieval Europe. And that is the case in large part today. The fact that it uh, disproportionately benefits the wealthy doesn't mean it doesn't also benefit society. Again, England, uh, Wait, Portugal, are you saying Spain, that the guy, who, the guy who was so involuntarily kidnapped and thrown on a ship and then not given any oranges or lemons who developed scurvy had his teeth fall out his eyesight go and then got blinded before he even got a chance to go into combat was somehow benefiting from colonialism i no, that isn't an argument that i made my friend the eggs you have to listen okay i'm not saying that every individual peasant benefited from colonialism I am saying the civilization at large did. This is factually correct if you take a look at all of the spices, material, wealth, and labor that these um, co- colonizers were able to extract from the colonized but civilizations. Why wouldn't they, they, why, why wouldn't they whoa, have been able whoa, whoa, to trade whoa, for please, them? Please, my friend, you made four points. I give you four points back. So this idea that it's disproportionate and how it's distributed, irrelevant to the broader argument. And last but 
not least. The idea that like, well, if colonialism was so profitable, why didn't they just keep doing it? There are a number of historical and social arguments as to why individual colonies, most of them fought or, or revolted against their colonial oppressors. Nowadays, we have an international environment that discourages colonialism, thank goodness. But uh, in large part, the reason why England didn't just, you know, stay in charge of India is because they were growing so feisty that it wouldn't have been worth the effort. So there you go. Colonialism was beneficial to the civilizations that colonized in general. That's why they did it after all. It was hard in the individual peasants of that civilization, but that's the case for everything that has ever taken place in these um, civilizations. That it was disproportionately beneficial to the wealthy is irrelevant. And the fact that it ended <laughs> the argument against its efficacy during the time when it was functioning. So real oh quick. Um, You're taking the side on, of the ruling class to own the free market guy. I guess, listen, I guess I'm going to be the one. Hang on, hang on. You, you had your say, man. You, you had your say. Back the fuck gotcha. off the mic. You had Come your on, say. Guys. All right. I guess I'm going to have to be the one who stands up for the working class here, because the fact that a couple of people really well connected to the guys with all the guns, the state, the fact that the oligarchs in the mercantilist, capitalist model, the fact that they were able to bribe the state to socialize the costs of their monopoly enforcement of the extraction of resources from foreign countries, which is what mercantilism is, the fact that they were able to socialize the cost of that by having the government steal people's lives, steal people's labor, and enforce people into the uh, Navy and into the Army and so on, the fact that they were able to do that is not beneficial to society as a whole. There is no such thing, of course, as society as a whole. I mean, this is just a concept, right? So the fact that the vast majority of, of people in the colonial powers paid more taxes, were subject to more arbitrary kidnappings and being forced to be uh, the, the, the Army and Navy slaves of the mercantilist powers that be, the idea that this is somehow beneficial to society as a whole is, is monstrous. Uh, the fact so, that oligarchs so I, I can use the power of the state can, to enslave the working classes is not beneficial to society as a whole. We, we I got to tell you, I was a little surprised this. hearing this, so, this, this defensive yeah, oligarchical mercantilist violence from I wanna, a communist is kind of surprising. So I've said this several times. I'm not making any moral statements, only factual statements. And the argument is uh, what builds civilizational wealth, over which colonialism objectively did. That's why they did it. So this weird, like, virtue signally, like, two-minute rant about how I dare I speak over the poor, plighted European commoner. I'm not saying any of this was moral. It's colonialism. I, do you think I'm defending colonialism? What, what are you – are you listening to this discussion? No. I'm saying it contributed to the accumulation of material wealth. This is what Marx would have called, by the way, primitive accumulation. You can Google that next time you'd like to come more prepared to a discussion of this caliber. But uh, yeah, in the future, please listen to my arguments before responding to them. Mod, uh, you've been interrupted so many times. I apologize for the indignities that have been forced upon you. What would you like to move oh. to next? No, so uh, I do want you guys each to have – thank you for that. I do want you guys to have a uh... – I found world on this 40 more. We got 40 more minutes, uh, and I, I do want to get in exploitation. So if you guys could just put in, like, you know, closing thoughts before we move on. Um, uh, Stefan, if you want to go ahead. Do you mean closing thoughts on the past discussion or? Um... On, yeah, human wealth. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, human wealth can be transferred at the point of a gun, for sure. I mean, uh, I was talking about this. I'm doing a series uh, for my subscribers, which is um, – uh, the Communist Manifesto for Children. Uh, she and I are going through the Communist Manifesto and, and talking about this. And without a doubt, uh, the farmer who grows the crops, you know, warlords can ride over the hill and can grab his stuff and, and you know, hit him with the hilt of their sword and, and steal his bread and his food and his beer and maybe his wife and all that. 
For sure, uh, but that does not generate wealth. What that does is it encourages everyone to exist at a bare subsistence level because all the excess that you have to put a huge amount of work into creating and holding on to, all of that excess can be snatched away from you at any time. Now, this, of course, occurs in more primitive societies or more warlord-based societies with just you know some guy coming over the hill and hitting you on the head and taking your stuff. So the transfer of wealth, so to speak, uh, does not add, like the forced transfer of wealth does not add to the wealth of society. But this is why societies remain so poor, is there was no point. If, if you could not hold on to your property, if you could not have property rights enforced, if you could not have contracts enforced, if you could not have future reliability for maintaining your control over the excess goods that you'd produce, you just don't produce any excess goods. It just doesn't work. I mean, this is why communist uh, economies and socialist economies are so unproductive because stuff just gets taken fairly arbitrarily by the state or by the local whoever, right? And so you have to have property rights in order to put in the labor to have some at least reasonable confidence that you can hold on to the excess value that you have produced, whatever it is. And so this argument that uh, somehow using force to transfer wealth adds to the wealth of society. Oh, yeah. I mean, the guy who knocks you over the head and takes your bread, he's got a loaf of bread and he didn't have to even uh, grow the food or, or he didn't have to grow the crops. He didn't have to cook it. He didn't have to do any of didn't have to store it. And so, yeah, there has been a transfer of wealth, but that is a net reduction because um, – not only has no wealth been created when you transfer a loaf of bread from a farmer to a warlord, but the effort that the warlord has put into pursuing and getting that bread is not something that is being used to produce any other good and service. And so you have a net reduction. Plus, in, in the long term, what happens is people, as I said, don't want to produce any excess goods unless they have some reasonable assurance that they can hold on to them. So the idea that the initiation of force and theft and so on adds to the wealth in society, either at an individual level or at some large mercantilist, colonialist level, uh, is just uh, uh, false. It's just false. So that's, yeah, that's my last thought. Um, uh, I guess uh, we can turn this over to Vash. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Vash. Yeah, uh, I'm a market socialist. Uh, I actually defend the efficacy of not necessarily free uh, markets, but at the very least of market economies. Um, and the reason why I'm a market socialist is because I recognize that the driving force of history from a material perspective is and always has been the tireless efforts of the nameless millions and billions of human beings who have lived and died on the fields or in the factories. These are the people who bring us forward, and to them we should always be grateful. We are them, after all. I'm working right now, and so is Stefan, of course, albeit our jobs are different than most folks, but this is nonetheless labor. Labor builds labor produces, labor provides. And while I do agree, and I want to be clear about this, you know, in the in the interest of fairness, that there are elements of liberal um, capitalism that have facilitated a, a an increase in our general level of economic efficiency. Even Marx contended this, that um, capitalism was superior materially and morally even to feudalism. Um, I, I do not believe that is in and of itself uh, a great enough explanatory variable to account for the entirety of human history. Um, so yeah, um, in, in conclusion, I suppose, while it is undeniable that uh, uh, market economies and um, and and uh, property rights have facilitated the development of um, further economic efficiencies, even those exist only through the tireless labor of the worker, as it has been since the beginning of time. And it is for that reason that I credit them. 
And I am, and I am, I am proud to say that every economic and political position that I advocate for and support, all of them are derived from the advocacy for this group of people who I believe we owe everything to. Can I just uh, mention one thing here? I know we've got this whole exploitation thing. I think it's been somewhat embedded into what it is that we have been talking about. And I'm just, I put a request in, of course, we can, we can obviously negotiate all of this, though I will be using Brad Pitt's agent to negotiate this next (laughs) part. But um, uh, so I think the exploitation part has largely been dealt with, uh, although we can certainly do it again or in in a different direction. But I am curious about what uh, I've seen from Vosh uh, about this idea that I think it's companies with over 500 employees should have uh, the government take the companies and distribute the ownership of the company to the employees and so on. Like the ideal economic situation to me is very simple, like non-aggression, non-initiation of the use of force, respect for property rights and everything else is fine. But I would like to know more about this approach to dealing with um, larger companies in, in Vosh's perspective. I'm sorry with you. I think that, um, so a if, lot of users here aren't familiar with you guys' views. I think it would be good if we started with just how you both guys view exploitation and we can jump right into that. I'd be happy to lead from exploitation into that because the two concepts are pretty inextricably linked. Do yeah, you want to go ahead? Go ahead. Uh, yeah, sure. So exploitation can mean a million different things. Scott, I mean, you can exploit your friends for like, you know, uh, for 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 pizza and free car rides. That's you know, but in a broad you know civilizational sense, in a, in a broader social sense, I think exploitation exists any time there is a power differential between one agent and another, and the more powerful agent uses that differential to extract favorable circumstances, conditions, or interactions from that person. The most obvious example of this would, of course, be the exploitation of the common worker, because a worker has much less bargaining power than a firm does, or a boss, or a business owner, or whatever. Um, A worker, while they can nominally negotiate for their wages, most of the time just has to accept what companies are providing, whereas companies have all of the bargaining power because they don't have the same level of individual vulnerability that a regular, average, everyday, middle class or poor person has. I would consider that to be a very severe form of exploitation. There's also a tremendous amount of labor theft that goes on in this country, more, in fact, than every other type of theft combined, including burglaries, robberies. This is stuff like unpaid overtime. These are very uh, serious and very uh, pernicious elements of overt and illegal exploitation that we have sort of normalized in our society through our uh, deferential, uh, almost uh, cuck-like reverence of the um, of the autocratic business owner. Uh, Vosh, have you ever been, like, have you been a business owner? Um unless you would consider what I am presently doing owning a business because I pay a few folks? No, not really. So you do have employees, right? I mean, I mean not in a legal sense because I just pay them for like editing work, for example. They would be more contractors. But apart from that, no. The real rigors of business owning I am not familiar with personally. And do you feel like you have massive power and control over the people who are contractors for you? Uh, some of them, Yes. I make a surprising amount of money from doing what I do. I know some of the people who work for me, who edit for me, aren't in positions of privilege as I am. And I know that the terms in which I negotiate how much I pay somebody to edit my videos are ones over which I have complete control. I can say 50 bucks to edit a video that's two hours. I can say 500 bucks. But that's, I mean, that's me to say. I'm in a much stronger position to bargain than they are. And why is that, do you think? Well, because I have much more money, power, and they're the ones coming to me to fulfill a subsistence need of theirs, which is wealth. And do you believe that 
that power, while it may not corrupt you because you have an admirable knowledge of these power relations, do you believe that many people are corrupted by that power? Do you think that's kind of innate to the mechanics of the system? Uh, yes, I think it's innate to the mechanics of the system. I don't know if it reflects necessarily on the moral character of the people who do the exploitation. I think it's a necessary component of a capitalist economy. Okay, so a difference in power tends to corrupt the person who has the most power, right? I believe so, generally speaking, yeah. And that's why we can't have a state. Um, I mean, I'm an anarchist, so... Good. Okay. So we agree on that, That because um, I, I thought I'd heard you make the argument that the government should uh, seize the means of production from large companies and distribute them to the owners, uh, sorry, to, to the workers. So I thought that you required a state for that. I, maybe I had mis misheard that argument. But uh, yeah, so that for sure, where, wherever one person has more authority uh, and more power, uh, there, there can be corruption that occurs. But of course, there is no possibility of a greater power differential than that between the state and the citizen. The state and the citizen oh, oh, is I, the I, greatest power differential that there is. And the monopoly on the use of force that characterizes the state, this is not for you. This is just for the audience as a whole who may not be oh, so no, sure, familiar with these arguments. I completely arguments. agree. Go off, King. I completely agree. I'm, I'm very anti-state, though I believe there are transitory systems between ours and a stateless society that should be implemented. But I am, in principle, agreeing with everything you say. Okay. So you have power uh, with regards to how much you pay people. But to some degree, you are, of course, also at the mercy whether they do a good job, whether they're reliable, whether they do it on time, or whether they end up trying to charge you more and withhold your materials and so on. I have gone from, you know, growing up uh, the dirt poor to I was, uh, I co-founded a software company, grew it to 30 or 40 people. And most of them worked for me because it was a software company and I was the chief technology officer. And you certainly do have some authority. And I, you know, it's funny because I remember being very sensitive to this, having been an employee myself for so many years. It's a funny thing. I'll just tell you this by the by. I, I was very aware that when I asked an employee to come into my office, that the employee would be nervous. And I actually remember sitting there brainstorming with a friend of mine, how can I invite an employee into my office so that the employee doesn't feel nervous that they're in trouble or they're fired or something like that. And, and I actually just came up with, just for those who ever want to use it, this was the residual product of my brainstorming. My answer was, or the solution was, uh, hey, so-and-so, can I just borrow you for a second? And that gave them some sense of ease. I don't know why, but it you kind of worked that way. But uh, I was, of course, also very much at the mercy of my employees, because if they decided to quit, if they got better jobs, uh, they walked out with a huge amount of knowledge. You know, we had a code base that ran into the massive amounts of lines of code and interoperability with various database systems and other systems and so on. And it took at least six months to train someone to be effective and efficient within that code base. And so there was authority, in a sense, on both sides. And uh, they were always being poached for better uh, jobs. And I always had to sort of make sure they were happy and so on. So there is a kind of equality on both sides in terms of the vulnerability uh, to to each uh, each person's uncoupling from the economic relationship, so to speak. There are undeniably workers who are in a privileged position to negotiate their salaries and their relative terms of employment. But I think for most workers, the reality is much grimmer. For most people, they know they are utterly dispensable cogs in a machine that is not of their design or control. And that if they choose to leave, hell, if they die, um, that they will be replaced uh, uh, almost immediately afterwards. Whereas the process of finding a new job, a job of comparable pay at that, um, might be much more difficult or even impossible for them. Um, I, I do applaud any efforts 
efforts made to ameliorate the inherent power differential between the worker and the owner. Um, but it is ultimately, I think, an, an, an inevitability that um, that this interaction produces exploitation. And I know, by the way, that you agree with this, at least principally, because you share my belief that the relationship between parent and child, a very socially normalized uh, hierarchical relationship, um, can also very often be uh, toxic or exploitative or abusive. It's, I mean, it's very normalized. Everyone's got a parent, or at least I suppose most people do. But we can agree, you know, with some reflection like, hey, it is a little bit weird that two people get absolute, utter authoritarian control over the, you know, uh, uh, how a, a baby is raised for 18 years. And that's kind of how I feel about businesses, too. You know, it's gotten very normalized, but you take a step back and it's like, wow, 98 or whatever percent of Americans work for authoritarian firms over which they have no control and they are utterly dependent on these systems for survival. Is that and really true? I mean, I'm not I'm not saying this because I don't think it's true. Um, and maybe I just move in more entrepreneurial circles. Is it really 98%? Oh, I, I'm, I was being, I think, a little hyperbolic. I don't know. I would imagine the vast majority of American workers are in that position. I would imagine it's more than 90%, but I don't have that exact statistic. Um, okay. I, I think it's lower than that as a whole, but but that's sort of neither uh, neither here nor there. I suppose, yeah, so the point I think to make here is why are the workers so replaceable? Because you said, as you said, and I'm not going to catch you out here, but as you said, there are the, the workers who are in a stronger position. You said privileged. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that terminology. But there are workers who are in a stronger position to negotiate, and there are workers who are in a less strong position to negotiate. And what do you think the difference is between the two workers? Like what, what, is, it, is it genetics? Is it, is it environment? Is it choice? Is it like, what is it that makes that difference? Mostly the material conditions of the worker and the firm they work for. Um, obviously, there's degrees of individual exceptionalism. Some people are truly phenomenal at their work. But I think for a lot of them, it's just like, uh, you know, tech jobs have a tendency. You said you worked for a tech startup or you were, I'm sorry, you owned a tech startup. Um, that uh, that in those cases, you know, usually people have very highly individualized, specialized knowledge that eventually becomes core to the development of whatever product or service it is that firm is providing. In those cases, I think the workers tend to have a fairly high level of, of control over their employment. But most people, whether they're intelligent or unintelligent, good or bad, black or white, male or female, most people's labor, and I think this is natural, is replaceable. Um, just by, by way of how an industrialized economy functions. I don't think these people should be relegated to the back pale of society, you know, where they have no power over their own lives. I think that these people are the backbone of our society. And that's why, and I'll end on this point, that's why I find the, the Atlas Shrugged terminology, the title of the book itself, so funny. Because in the context of the book, it's about these, these great leaders, you know, these, you know, unchained by, by state regulation, they rise and take society with them. But I mean, in a much more immediate sense, all the workers need to do is stand up. You're right. As powerful as firms are, they are utterly powerless. The entire capital class is reduced to tears the moment the workers decide to stand up, to strike, or to do any kind of unionization work. Um, and I think we need to move in that direction. That power differential needs to be addressed. It needs to be corrected. Well, and listen, I have no 
moral objections. In fact, I, I quite support unions as long as they're voluntary and as long as they don't use uh, force to get their way. I have, you know, I mean, if 100 workers want to walk out of a factory, the boss is in a huge amount of trouble and might bring him to the table that he wouldn't nice get to. Other, and of course, people can uh, ask for too much. But the, the, the bosses can ask for too much profit, and that's at the expense of the workers. The workers can ask for too much pay, and that's at the expense of their survivability as a firm, because they can't you know, if you if you give workers double their salaries, you have to probably increase the price of your goods by 40 to 50 percent. And that means you can't compete. So it's a complex negotiation. But here's the thing, I think, where you and I are going to differ. And, and I think this will be a very productive conversation, because when I look at the difference between workers who are interchangeable and workers who are really, really valuable, you can look at that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Vash, but I think you would look at that and say, that's a systemic problem that we need to deal with in some external way. Whereas what I would say, this is what I said to my employees. I said, listen, I would love to pay you more. I would love to pay you more, but it's not up to me. It's up to the customer. If you can provide value to the customer over and above what you're providing now, I would love to pay you. I am just, I am the flow through mechanism by which you get paid by the customer. And if it's any consolation, I said, I'm also the flow through mechanism by which I get paid by the customer. And I also work for you because I would deal with a lot of the, uh, the shit that they didn't want to deal with, with bad customers or problems with the specs and all. I would have to go in and negotiate all of that. So if you have a worker, let's say, who doesn't feel that he or she has much negotiating room, this is what I would say to that person. I would say, look, you have a choice. You can wait for some magic leftist horse rider to come in and, and save you. Or what you can do is you can really work to improve the value that you add to the company. I don't know what that means because it could be different for everyone. Like, why was I able to start a software company even though my graduate work was in the history of philosophy? Well, because from the age of 11 or 12, I took a tiny inheritance and bought a cheap computer. I learned how to program. I would go in on Saturdays all day to the computer lab in school when the computers had a grand total of 2K between them, I think, of memory. And I learned how to program. And that just turned out to be super valuable for um, founding the software company and coding in, in that professional environment. And so I would say, and I know it sounds kind of ridiculous, like this learn to code thing has become kind of a ridiculous thing. But if you take the time and effort to educate yourself, to gain skills. And this doesn't have to be night school. It can be just looking at stuff on the internet. It can be listening to, don't listen to music in the car, maybe listen to uh, how business works or something like that. So there's a lot that you can do to add value and, and be in a stronger negotiating position without complaining about the system. And that's so the first thing. And the second thing that I would say, and I, again, we probably agree on this, although that may not be the case, but uh, dear God, government schools are terrible because they put out people after 12 years of education with almost no economically valuable skills at all. And it's even worse in university sometimes because you come out with negative economic value. Not only have you not learned anything, but you've grown to hate the market system that you kind of need to survive in to pay off your stupid overhyped predatory student loans. Boy, there's an example of exploitation is student loans for crappy education that harms your brain. So uh, so just to finish up, and I'll, I'll let you, of course, have your chew on this, but um, I think if we had a system or we had a, a free market educational system, it would, it would actually instill people with 
really valuable skills so they could get out there and they could negotiate hard for what it is that they want. We don't even teach negotiation in government schools. We don't have, teach how to read a balance sheet. We don't teach about uh, the value of cash flow. We don't teach about how to serve customers. We don't teach about how to start a company. We don't teach any of the things. And I don't think it's an accident because I think a lot of the powers that be, these high-level corporate capitalists, I think that they're kind of happy that the schools are dumbing down people who could outcompete them. Like, why is it that my company, I was up competing with Microsoft, I was out there competing with IBM, these big giant companies. Why is it I was able to compete with them? I was willing to work harder, I was hopefully willing to work smarter and willing to take risks that the other bigger companies weren't. I didn't learn any of that in school. I learned that from economics. I learned that from business books. And so if we had a system where young people were taught actual business skills and they were taught how to negotiate and how to provide value, that would be, I mean, be fantastic because we're back to the statement about where does wealth come from? Wealth comes from efficiency. It comes from knowledge. It comes from finding faster and better ways to serve uh, the infinite well of human needs. Right now, we have a system that dumbs people down, that throws them out into the marketplace, crippled intellectually from terrible anti-educational practices in the state. And I really, really would focus on people. Maybe we'll get the magic uh, classless and stateless society 100 or 200 years down the road. But in the meantime, please, please up your skills. Uh, up your capacity or willingness to take risk, learn extra stuff, go that extra mile, and you'll find that when you go into that negotiating table, you'll have a lot more weight behind you and much, a much better chance of getting what you deserve. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I, I agree with the sentiment of a lot of this. Uh, one of the issues, I mean, American education is crap. Actually, I think that's a bit of a meme. I think that education is crap almost everywhere in the world. And the reason for that, I think I would blame capitalism for this, um, at least here using America as an example. So I'm familiar. Um, textbooks are manufactured um, by private companies that engage in rent-seeking behavior by petitioning to local school boards to, you know, get them their products on the table as opposed to other textbooks that might cover a subject more comprehensively. Um, we have, I mean, Betsy Davos right now, like, is our, is our education secretary. Um, there is an attitude um, for those who preside over our education system, which are in many cases state actors, but also in many cases private actors, or sometimes the line between them gets blurred, who are conspiring to turn school into a machine for stupid workers, to ju just turn them into drone cucks that will well, just... Well, it comes off the Prussian model, right? Good good factory well, I, workers, I, dumb soldiers, and... Ugh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just, no, no, I mean, I agree. I think, so this is where I depart from you in that. I think the opposite approach should be taken. While I do agree that marketable skills should be taught in schools, I mean, this is a sense, like, we need this to, for our society to continue. We need marketable skills. I also think that we shouldn't, you know, shame or, or uh, discourage people um, who decide to pursue uh, less marketable skills. I think the fact that universities accessible to a lot of people is a beautiful thing if you want to learn about underwater basket weaving i mean maybe it doesn't make someone somewhere out there you know a ton of money but i'm sure that somewhere out there the world is being enriched artistically through the existence of baskets that were you know woven underwater you could probably make a good youtube channel about that i think they're actually Honestly. pronounced sorry go ahead <laughs> No, I, no, and in all likelihood, yes. But who knows what underwater speaking texts will have when, when when this gets run out? But um, but I think this is where I mean, this is where I would push back, I guess, on your your overall sentiment um, is that I agree that. Um, People should strive to be individually exceptional. I, I, this idea, some people do believe this. Most of the leftists that I know don't. I'm happy to say that. Most of the leftists and myself agree that while 
Um, while it's very important to organize collectively and fight for people on a social front rather than doing this hyper-atomized individualistic rhetoric, at the same time, individual exceptionalism is very valuable. I mean, God, you know, would do you, like we don't want to live in a world where everyone's just meeting the, the you know the moderate the bar, you know, where everyone's just trying to cross the foot high, um, you know, jumping bar. Um, we want people to try to be exceptional, and this is my argument to you: it's that I think the environment that best facilitates the production of exceptional individuals, um, whether they want to get into underwater basket weaving or, or, you know, corporate finance, I don't know, is a uh, worker cooperative model, um, is one in which everyone collectively owns whatever firm it is they work for. And the reason for that is because I am, to borrow a quote, perhaps haphazardly, less concerned with the intricacies of Einstein's brain than I am with the near guaranteed knowledge that hundreds of people as intelligent as him have lived and died in fields and factories. That's what concerns me more than anything. It's the knowledge that there are incredible people out there who, if they had just been given more of a shot, maybe, for example, a more equitable living circumstances, better education, or collective control of the means of production, a little bit of democratic control over where they work, they could have become magical. But they can't because there are so many systems of, of governance, of free market in our society that conspire, you know, to, to borrow the phrase, to keep them and many people like them in the dirt. That is my argument to you, that such a society would actually produce these these uh, tremendous people uh, in greater quantities than what we see now. Well, I did want to, I don't want to play Mr. Gotcha game, but I guess I do in a little way because you did use the phrase, uh, some people are phenomenally productive, which actually goes back to my very first point uh, that, that you seem to not like too much, but uh, I guess we kind of close the circle on that. But here's what I would say about this. And, and you, you have, let's, let's say your channel, right? Your channel is a means of production, right? I mean, you, you have uh, your, your webcam or your camera, you have a microphone or you have your technology, you have software, computer, hardware, all that kind of stuff, right? We all know this, like it looks simple, but it's a whole house of cards sometimes just getting this crap to work sometimes. So you have, you, you are a monopolist owner of a means of production called the Vosh channel. And, you know, I just just out of curiosity, because I'm always I'm always like, I want to see theories in practice. I want to see theories in practice. And so I had to look through your channel. Not again, it's not a gotcha thing. I'm genuinely curious. And you seem to be the host of every show. And so I'm kind of curious why the people who work with you don't get to host your show. In other words, why don't you take your channel and do what you suggest is the best thing to do. Have other people host your channel, uh, share your profits with them, get them involved, rather than paying them in this cold Marxist wage laborer, dry calculations of mutual utility stuff. Why don't you put your theories in into practice? And again, I'm not saying this like, well, what are you hypocrite? I'm just, I'm curious why you don't put your theories into practice and create a worker-run, worker-owned, worker-controlled factory called the Vosh channel because you seem to hold a monopoly on the microphone and I'm not you're not sharing it with with the workers and I'm just wondering why yeah I do think there are reasonable thresholds of of um, worker participation behind which it's not reasonably expected that you should adopt a cooperative model um, for, for for my case an example I probably do about like 95 percent of the work to keep the channel afloat. I mean it's, but you wouldn't it's if you let other people host right 
Well, that is true. I could spread the workaround more. But the main reason why I think the co-op model is essential and, you know, broadly speaking, is because um, it is a solution to this very particular type of wage exploitation that we see in the traditionally run firm. And but, that's I'm not sorry, a model. But that's, that's what you were talking about with the people you pay. Why don't you invite them in to collectively own your channel rather than pay them? If the wage paying is exploitive, why don't you – I mean – this is what you think is the good, and you certainly nobody's going to stop you from doing it, and that's why. Because I'm curious why you're not doing it. Yeah, because I do not think that um, the the uh, uh, exploitation model is descriptive when we're talking about people who aren't expected to supply consistent wage labor um, to whatever firm it is they participate in. So just because a person, for example, like I might shoot them a message on Discord, like once or twice a month or something and be like, hey, can you cut down this video from the DNC debates? I'll give you 200 to $300. Just because they have that level of engagement. While I do agree there is a fundamental level of inequality in the relationship between us in that bargaining system, I don't believe that type of exploitation is one which should be ameliorated with a worker-owned collective. Now, I will say- Wait, and so that, that it's is for other people, not for you, right? Well, no, this, the, I, I mean, I hardly think the way I run my channel is in any way comparable to like a business, but, um, but I will say well, this. What do you mean? Do why think, is it not, sorry, why is it not a business? Well, I mean, for one, I don't like, I literally don't have a business. I don't have an LLC. Like I just, I make contract money from YouTube and from direct donations. And then I redirect. You produce that. a product and you gain profits from that product. And uh, it's, I assume you pay taxes and you file. And I mean, it, just because you don't have an LLC yet, doesn't mean sure that I'll it's not a business, it. is it? Uh, well, I mean, it's legally not a business. I'm a contractor of YouTube. No, um, I get that, that. Would be but like, it's a business. Come on. I mean, you, well, you, I mean you're putting well, out a product and you're making money. And I guess in, if, in a, if this collective way to go is the way to go, I would expect, like I was really, I went to your channel and I'm like, wow, because there's a lot of up and coming YouTubers that would really like to get access to your like 60,000 odd subscribers. And I'm just curious why you don't share your means of production with, with because, them. Because an, because an equivalent example would be like saying that a delivery boy should be in the part of a worker co-op of like a legal firm because like twice a week he brings them orange chicken, you know, um, just because there is money exchange between those two agents and just because they provide a service to the law, like legal firm doesn't mean that they have a relationship on a level that um, that necessitates a worker cooperative. I will say this, though, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to like skip on out of this. I do think there are people who run YouTube channels large enough that you could argue that a worker cooperative would be a viable enterprise for them. The Young Turks, for example, um, I know recently there have been attempts for the unions to work. Uh, organized. There's been some drama on that specifically. They've rejected um, the uh, union uh, organization, right? I, I heard that, but then I heard they had just like, they want like a private meeting before they agree to certain, I'm not sure. It's very complicated. I don't like have a set opinion on it, but whatever the case may be, um, if I agree that there are some levels of business relation that should be cooperatized, but there are some levels that are abstracted enough that they probably shouldn't. If you believe I'm being hypocritical in this case, um, that I don't like my editor, for example, they don't become part of a worker cooperative, even though I don't even have an LLC, then that would extend the reach of worker cooperatives to a point where you would have to include like delivery people and the guy who like waters the plants every Tuesday. Well, no, no, but that's no, but that results from your decision to create a monopoly over your channel, to have you as the monopolistic host over your channel. And that also does create, of course, you would probably be getting 95% of the profits of your business, right? Um, presently, I'm probably getting in the ballpark of 80, but 
Yeah. Okay, so so you get 80% of the profits of your business, and so you make far more than the people you pay, and uh, it is, I assume, a full-time gig, given the number of videos you put out. I assume this is your thing, right? I mean, I'm, maybe you have... Yeah, I don't have much other... Not much free time these days. Okay, so so, so this is your thing, and you so you have a monopoly over the means of production of your channel. You take eighty percent of the profits, and you don't have any ownership <laughs> share with anyone who works for you. I mean, and that's not actually. I mean, when I work with people, I generally will pay them a percentage of of whatever comes in from from the channel. I'm actually, I guess, much more of a worker cooperative guy than than you are, but. If it's an efficient business model, you can say, well, I'm not big enough. But if it's an efficient business model and the Young Turks should do it and you shouldn't, isn't that the best way to get to be the size of the Young Turks? And if you haven't done it, I guess, but you're recommending it to other people, you say, well, I'm too small. But isn't that how you get bigger? I don't I do not believe that privately uh, that that individual YouTube channels where 90% of the work is done by one individual who could be doing 100% of the work if they just wanted to spend less time playing video games and actually knuckle down to the editing themselves are the appropriate business model um, for um, to apply a worker cooperative standard. I've never heard anyone argue in favor of that. It should be noted, though, that while the intricacies of applying worker cooperative business models are incredibly complicated, and, and there's a whole range of nuanced discussion there, whether or not that, that fuzzy line would include where I am presently, which I've, I've never heard anyone say. No, but wouldn't, like, wouldn't it be cool to, uh, to to take your theory for a spin? I mean, you, listen, you could put a message I, I, out I, here I, saying, listen, if you're... I would want business Hang on, hang on. I'm just, I'm just curious, right? I'm not trying to get you. I'm just, I'm genuinely curious. But I mean, if you were to say out there, listen, if you want access to my means of production, you're a, you're a struggling, disadvantaged, maybe a minority YouTuber, uh, I'm happy to turn over my means of production to you and you can take the microphone once a week and and I'll pay you a percentage of, of the donations because you've got 80% of, of, you, of the money goes to you, right? So you've got some stuff to spread around and it would be a great way for you to open up your channel to a multiplicity of voices and to not have this monopoly production of the means, uh, mon- monopoly control over the means of production. And it would mean, of course, you'd have less uh, work to do and so on. And it just, it would be a very cool thing for you to do because I'll tell you this, I mean, uh, I've, you know, one of the reasons I'm so keen on the free market is, you know, I got my first job when I was 10. You know, everyone's like, ooh, child labor is bad. It's like, no, no, no. Child labor was essential for me uh, to survive. I've been paying my own bills since I was 15 years old for a variety of reasons that are both comical and tragic. But um, uh, so I've sort of been in the free market uh, from from the very beginning. I'm not saying you haven't been or anything like that, but uh, um, having been an entrepreneur, having, you know, built a company, gone through all of that you know, from from like two guys in a room to to being going public and all, it's a big deal, right? And then having been an entrepreneur in this space for like 15 years now and all that excitement, I've really, I really feel like I've kind of lived it. And and when you've lived it, you get a kind of um, oomph or 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 bedrock to your perspective uh, because it's sort of like if you're looking at a tree and someone tells you it's not a tree. Uh, it's, you know, okay, well, I don't even know what to say other than it's a tree. <laughs> As I'm looking at it, see that it's a tree. And the reason I'm suggesting this, just being annoying older guy, it, you know, I know it's annoying and it may be pure nonsense, but uh, what I would say, Vash, is you want to take your theories out of the books, out of the library, and put them into practice, right? So if you think that, uh, you know, worker sharing is better, find a way to implement that in your business. I absolutely guarantee you can, and, you know, we can talk offline if you want help on that. 
Um, if you want, if you say, well, we should, you know, help the less fortunate, then open up your channel to other people to to do shows there and give them a voice uh, there, not just through debating, because debating, you have to usually have a certain size and all that kind of stuff. And really open up your control over the means of production to the less fortunate. And then you'll see how it plays out. Maybe it'll be absolutely fantastic so uh, I, and, and work out really well. Maybe there'll be things that are challenges. But and if I'll it does to, work out, you'll end up with a really soon. powerful oomph saying, hey, you know, this isn't just theory, man. I've, I've lived it and I've done it. And, and so, here's what I got. A few things to clarify, and I'll have to conclude on this because I have to go because I'm also debating destiny um, immediately after this, and I, I'm great at scheduling. So to clarify, first of all, I, while it would be great for me to open my heart up and just let every person with, um, with, with a need to participate in my channel, that has nothing to do with the fundamental principles of worker cooperatives. Worker cooperatives mean that everyone who is a employee of a given firm collectively owns that. I do not have employees, and there is a big difference between an employer and a contractor. Uh, I have never heard a person advocate that like an individual YouTube channel should be subjected to an economic model, which is clearly intended for traditional firms with traditional employee relationships. But I am happy to say there's nothing theoretical about what I'm advocating here. Literally millions Millions of people across the world are employed in worker cooperatives. Uh, there is a great deal of actually, I'm going to be honest, there's there could be more research done on them. But the limited research that exists in them seems to speak very positively of their general level of productivity, worker satisfaction, and a bunch of other factors like ability to withstand price shocks and economic downturns that exceeds traditionally owned, um, you know, authoritarian firms. So whatever I choose to do with my channel uh, in the near future, I sincerely appreciate your uh, uh, your offer of, of advice and counsel. But um, it is it is in, in fact the traditional firm I am most interested in seeing uh, uh, be made a worker co-op. Um, I have to head in, uh, in in like in like two minutes. So moderator, would you like to impose some sort of ending state on this discussion? Uh, yeah, before we do, um, I just want to make sure, uh, Vosh, you, uh, you said that's going to be on DLive, right? Yeah, I'll stay where I am currently. I'm just DLive slash the real Vosh because someone took Vosh before I caught Vosh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll post that after this. And Stefan, I'll post your uh, YouTube channel again. Yeah. But um, I guess just before I wrap up, uh, Stefan, you want to have the, the final word here? No, not really. I mean, if, if okay. Vosh has to go, um, he's probably got me. I know he's got more hair, hair to wash than I do. So uh, if Vosh has to go, that's fine. I do appreciate the conversation. Uh, I know he's got to go. But listen, I'm, I'm real happy to. I booked a little bit more time. And, uh, you know, I had my granola bar before we started. So I'm ready to go, baby. But uh, if you if we have uh, people in the audience who want to ask questions or, or make comments, I would be happy to stay for a little bit longer and um, and deal with, with any of those if people are interested. Uh, and again, I really do thank you, the, the mod, and, and Vosh for taking the time. This is... Uh, this is my life, man. I used to go to clubs. I used to dance all night. And now there's nothing more fun than a debate uh, on a, uh, uh, on a uh, Sunday. Is it Sunday night? I've lost actually. <laughs> I've lost night. track a little bit. What are we here? Yeah, Sunday night. Uh, That's, you know, I guess that not that many clubs open on a Sunday night. But uh, yeah, I used to get ringing in my ears all day from listening to Depeche Mode all night. Now I love debating exploitation and colonialism. So <laughs> I just want to thank everyone who dropped by and, and Vosh and the moderator for setting it up. Yeah, All right. likewise, if I may. Just sorry. Probably Tim, Blue Politics, thank you so much for hosting. Stefan, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate it. Please have a phenomenal day. Um, and uh, uh, I know I don't know the specifics. I don't know if there's some drama about it, but um, you, you should 
uh, uh, debate Destiny sometime. I know he's super unprofessional in emails or whatever, but he's a uh, he's a uh, he's a feisty he's a feisty lad, um, and he's usually a good time to talk to. Up to you, of course. I appreciate but... the recommendation. All right, have a good one. All right, so thanks both of you guys. Uh, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate both of you guys coming out, and I also appreciate both of you guys uh, keeping it pretty tame i know there's a few points i could tell you guys were holding back and i appreciate this was uh honestly i think it was uh quite productive and it was good um this is a great discussion so uh we've got a little bit of extra time here so peace out um have a good one bosh do uh, i mean um, if you want to if you want to throw people up or take text chats uh i'd be happy for that uh if uh if if that's the way you want to do it or if there's something else Sure. So if anyone wants to uh, ask some questions, uh, I opened up the AMA questions chat just above this VC. You throw in there. If you want to ask a question uh, yourself in voice chat, uh, assuming you're okay with that, Stefan. Yeah, let me let me just while while you gather those together, I just listen. I want to mention because, look, there's a little bit of team mechanics going on here. Like there's Team Vosh and there's Team Eggman and there's probably (laughs) Team Walrus out there somewhere for those who love the Beatles. But listen. You, you can't lose in a debate. Like, let's, oh, he destroyed and smashed. And like, no, 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 no. Listen, you can't lose in a debate because if you're disproven, you get the truth, which is a great plus and a great positive. Uh, some of what uh, Vash and I uh, were debating was uh, sort of factual based and, you know, was colonialism beneficial for the society as a whole or did it just benefit particular class individuals at the top near state power and so on? Some of that was empirical. And some of that was sort of moral and foundational. And um, uh, I, I liked his debates. I thought he did a very, very good job. Uh, I don't think he did quite enough of a good job to, to prevail, but that's obviously uh, not my fundamental place to decide. But let's uh, try and stay away from the he destroyed, he smashed, he this, he that. You know, I mean, he, uh, he put some really good arguments in. I put some good arguments in back. And the purpose, of course, is to show the back and forth, to show that people even from relatively oppositional sides of the political aisle, can have a productive discussion. And uh, I was the only one who dropped an F-bomb, so I guess that means I lose. But anyway, so I just wanted to <laughs> mention that uh, while we just wait for the questions to come in. Okay, so yeah, guys, in the chat above uh, this VC AMA questions, go ahead and write your questions there. If you want to ask it in voice, write in all caps VC um, before it. I guess while they're coming in, I'll just go ahead and ask a question myself. Um uh, I know you probably feel like you may have answered this. I didn't feel like it was really fully fleshed out. So I was wondering if you could touch on this. Um, in the debate, you were saying, I know there's three things. You put it in a, a trilogy. I'm not going to remember all of them, but it was property rights essentially is the source of human wealth. Can you explain like how you think mechanistically it's it all derives from property rights? Well, sure. Okay. So morality is often portrayed as something that you have to learn Kantian style German or ancient Aramaic to understand and you've got these massively thick books on morality that makes everybody's head turn to dust. My moral foundation was working as a daycare teacher for years when I was a teenager where I had a class full with another teacher. I was a teacher's assistant, not a formal teacher, but it was like 25 to 30 kids aged 5 to 10 for a couple of hours uh, every day after school. I had actually made arrangements to leave school early to get the job because I needed money for rent. And then I would work all summer uh, full time. And, and you, you know, when you work with kids, 
which was great fun. And I really loved those kids. And I think we all had good relationships. But when you work with kids, you, you constantly, what are the two things that you say all day with kids who have uh, been brought up pretty rough sometimes? It was a pretty rough neighborhood in many ways. Well, what do you say? You say, don't hit and don't grab, right? Don't hit and don't grab. Don't push, don't shove, don't use force. And don't take people's stuff. Don't take other kids' stuff. Hey, if the kid's got gum and wants to share it, fantastic. But you don't just get to go into his backpack and take his gum, right? That's wrong. So morality is really not that complicated. If you expect a four-year-old or a five-year-old or even a three-year-old to kind of understand morality, it can't really be that complicated. And it's really not. So that's a property rights don't steal and don't initiate the use of force. Listen, there were times where I'd see, I would see, because the kids are always hoping that you don't see, and then they can both come to you and say, he started, he started. But you'd see, sometimes you'd see one kid would push another kid, and then the other kid would jump up and push him back, right? And I wouldn't ever say to the kid who pushed back that was bad, right? Because that's self-defense, so to speak, particularly if it was more immediate, right? I mean, if it was five minutes later, maybe not so much. So... You do need to have the foundation of non-aggression and property rights. There's not this weird flip that happens in morality where it's like, well, it's great for five-year-olds to to not initiate force and to respect property rights. But boy, by the time you get to 20 or 30, it's this postmodern relativistic hellscape of subjectivism and exploitation. So that's – I just wanted to make that sort of basic point. But the way that property rights produce wealth ties into what I said near the end of the last debate uh, before we got into um, the final debate about – Vosh wanting everyone else to adopt socialism except him. The, 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 the point of that was to say if you don't have a reasonable expectation that the excess value that you produce, which is you, – you have to have it to trade. If you only ever grow enough food to feed yourself and your family, there's no economy. There's no trade. It's just subsistence farming, which characterized a good deal of human history. So you have to have a, a reasonable expectation that you will get to keep and trade the excess, why would you grow extra food if it's just going to get stolen from you? Why would you bother? It's, I mean, aside from what Bloomberg says, I guess he didn't ask all his farmer friends. Farming is hard work. If you want to produce excess food, it's bloody hard work. You've got to get up early. Uh, you, your back is going to hurt. You've got to mend fences. You've got to milk cows. You, I mean, anyone who's not done manual labor in their life should never talk about farming because it's bloody hard work. And it's also, you have to be really, really smart and plan for a lot of this stuff as well. So if you don't have property rights and the right of contract, Property rights being I can hold on to the excess that I produce and contract mean I can trade and get paid for it and, and whatever because sometimes there's delays in payment and all that. So if you don't have property rights and contract, nobody produces any excess and you don't have any wealth. That's number one. Number two is that, as I mentioned, if, if you are a farmer and you can produce twice the crops out of one acre – of land, then you can bid more for that land. Why? Because you're going to pay for that land with some of the crops. So one guy can produce only $100 worth of crops from an acre of land. Another guy can produce 200 acres of crops through fertilizer, through better better, um, planting methods, through putting up a scarecrow, keeping the bugs off, whatever it is going to be, right? He can produce more. So the guy who can make $200 a year out of an acre of land is going to be able to bid more for that land than the guy who can only make $100 a year, right? Because he can get more profits, right? So he can bid more for the land. And so the most productive tend to end up with the most land. And that works for a little while until their lazy-ass, eaten style kids end up just 
you know, not grasshoppering, but anting all summer, and then they end up blowing all. Like I, I was, my family was rich aristocracy uh, in in Ireland for a thousand years until my grandfather, the drunken wastrel, uh, blew up all of the land and sold it all off to fund his epic debaucheries and used his last couple of bucks to send my aunts and my father to. Uh, to, to university and uh, it was it's all gone right? it's all gone and it's kind of true right I mean uh, as I said 90% of the wealth the family accumulates is usually gone by the third generation and so because there's this constant shuffling so you know let's say I'm the great farmer I end up with 10,000 acres and I'm just producing food like crazy my son is not a very good farmer and so maybe he'll borrow, maybe he'll go into debt, maybe because he doesn't like farming and he's not good at it, he'll go do something else. And then he hires someone who's not that invested in it and so on. And eventually the, the land is going to be up for sale. And some new guy who's a fantastically great farmer will snap it up because, again, he can bid the highest. And he ends up producing maybe even more crops. And so you have to have this constant shuffling of resources into the hands of the people best able to maximize and create amazing things out of them. And, and that process is what generates wealth. If you interrupt that process, if you stop that process, wealth begins to decline and decay almost immediately. All right. So let's just get right into the next. Um, real quick here. If anyone uh, to have a, a kind of, I guess, mini voice debate, are you open to that or do you want to stick no, to yeah, no, no. Bring, bring him in? Hey, let's, let's, let's uh, socialize this mofo. <laughs> so if you guys uh want to have a mini debate with stefan uh write in ama questions vc there and uh last time i'll say this if you want to invite your friends here it's bluepolitics.gg i'm sorry discord.gg slash bluepolitics so uh spacebeard has a question he'd like to ask you let's see spacebeard are you there yeah i'm here go ahead so uh, my question is, uh, before when you were talking about property rights, it seems to me that you were conflating um, simple possession and property rights. And it's my understanding of both uh, most modern legal code and both uh, and, and, you know, just historical uh, common law. Those two things are uh, are not the same. Yet it, it seems to be a common trend that uh, these things are are associated as if they're synonymous. What are your thoughts on that? Which things are synonymous? I'm sorry if I missed it. Uh, you, it, it seemed to me that you were you were that you were synonymizing simple possessions and property rights. I'm 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 sorry. You're going to have to tell me what you mean by simple. Do you mean a toothbrush? Or what do you mean? Yeah, I mean before you were talking about like the foundations of morality and children and how they had possessions. Then you you in in, in when you were talking about that, you were conflating that with property rights, where property rights are a uh, a, a legal system uh, that that really governs interactions between people with relations to a specific, you know, natural resource or means of production and a simple possession is a simple possession is that they're totally distinct. Oh, like okay. Sorry. I think I understand now. So what you're saying, is, and it's a bit of a Marxist distinction, which doesn't mean that it's false. I just sort of want to point out the historical origin of it. So the Marxist distinction is to say that the ownership of the means of production determines class consciousness and owning a toothbrush is not going to determine your class consciousness, but owning the factory that produces the toothbrush is going to. So there's a distinction. Uh, and and um, uh, Vosh was talking about this as well, where he was saying, look, my channel is is not the same as a big company, so there's totally opposite economic rules should apply, and I should 
wage exploit my workers or contractors rather than invite them in to participate in a worker-owned collective or something like that. But morality doesn't work that way. Morality doesn't say, well, there's one set of property rights for goods over a million dollars and there's another set of property rights for goods under a hundred dollars. There's just property rights. And property fundamentally is not what you have, it's what you create. In other words, property rights are fundamentally about things that are brought into utility or brought into existence that wouldn't otherwise exist. So in other words, if I go fishing on a lake, sounds like somebody's flushing a toilet. Oh, well, it's good having the water background for a fishing story. So if, if I go fishing in a lake I'm conv- and I, I catch a fish and I bring it and I sell it to you for a buck for, for your dinner, right? Well, I didn't create the fish, but I converted the fish into a usable good by taking it from the bottom of the lake where you can't eat it and putting it in your pan and then into your belly, right? So the property right is converting something that has non-value, like the fish at the bottom of the lake. It only has potential value. It converts it into something that has real value. In the same way, if I buy a piece of land to grow food, I'm not buying the land. I'm buying the right to keep the food that I grow. In other words, if somebody were to sell me the land but not any right to grow food, well, I wouldn't buy it because I only want the land as a mechanism by which I can be guaranteed to own the products of what I create, right? So understanding that property rights are foundationally about what you create. I mean, nobody would build their house on land that somebody else owned because the person could just kick them off at any time, right? So you have to establish ownership of the land to build your house on. Otherwise, the house isn't going to get built. And so... Property rights fundamentally are required for the creation of goods because I'm not going to bid on land if I want to grow food. I'm not going to bid on land unless I can grow, keep, keep the food that I grow there, right? harvest it and keep it. And so property rights regarding means of production, you know, if, if you borrow money and you hire people and you create a factory, well, that's the same as you and your brother creating a log cabin in the woods. It's just a difference of scale. And morality doesn't suddenly reverse after a certain scale, you know, well, I guess in the communist world, uh, if you're an individual murderer, you're a bad guy. But if you kill 100 million people, well, you're just idealists who need one more chance, right? But in, in the genuine world of morality, uh, size doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> it always sounds bad when a man has to say size doesn't matter. It's not the wand, it's the magician, baby. But uh, so the idea that there would be separate property rights for the means of production versus individual property, you own the effects of your actions, whether it's a toothbrush or your genius in creating a factory that builds toothbrushes, you are still responsible. You own the effects of your actions. I own the product of my debate. Uh, I own, you know, people say to me, well, your tweet said this and that's bad. It's like, well, you're just affirming property rights. Like I created the tweet. Uh, I am responsible for the tweet. If you go strangle a guy, you're responsible for the resulting murder. So we are responsible for the effects of our actions. That doesn't matter how big or how small our actions are. It may matter from a legal context insofar as stealing a candy bar isn't as bad as stealing, um, I don't know, some Aztec kid's living heart on a ritual stone rock or something. But uh, the morality doesn't, uh, doesn't care about scale. Uh, it's, it's more binary than that, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, um, again, like you, you keep saying there's no distinction, but there is, there's a very concrete legal distinction between a possession and private property. It's like, okay, I own the fact, like I own, I own the farm and everything that comes out of it. Even if I, I hire somebody to come and produce the thing. I mean, it, it, again, and, 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 and your, 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 your assertions about 
like morality somehow caring like morality is this separate thing. I, I find that a little bit like nonsense in an aside. Sorry, anyways, I don't but... understand the farm example. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want to make sure. We... I always get accused of interrupting, but it's because I don't want people to keep building arguments when I don't understand the beginning, if that makes sense. You know, like if someone tells well, you how I to mean, get somewhere and you don't understand where you've turned left or right at the beginning, you kind of got to stop them there, right? So what do you mean about, the, let's say I own 10 acres and I hire you, some you, guy you started to... started off a little, bit, a little bit like rambly and off topic anyways. But the thing is that... Um, like what I asked you was like why you, you 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 keep conflating simple possessions and private property when there is neither a historical connection between the two nor a current legal connection between the two, but you're speaking about them as if they as, as if there is like a private property like private property rights is your right to own a natural resource or a corporation or something like this from which you have the right of capital increase. Whereas like simple possession is like I have a banana in my hand and I'm eating it. That's a simple possession. It's different like than than me saying I own this land and these natural resources and anything that comes out of it. And I can control all of the economic activity in this as a kind of like micro state. You know, like they like one is a very new legal construct within the cons with like within the construct of liberalism. Right. Wait, are you, wait, are you saying that, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, dude, dude, are you saying that, that large land ownership is a new construct? Okay. So like the, the, like one is a very ancient human, uh, uh, relationship between an object and the person. And the other is a rather new legal distinction that came out of the enlightenment era, like within, uh, like within, within France and the aristocracy and, and the establishment of capitalism. But so sorry, like but not, you, you know that there was, different. hang on, you know that there were landowners in ancient Greece and ancient Rome that owned thousands or tens of thousands of acres, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, this is true. But again, like within the modern context, of course, we've had private property rights in the past. But again, even there, it's different than a simple. Okay, but so what's the difference? So just help, help me understand. I mean, you, you still have control over your farm well, and you have control over your banana. Right, well... One requires a state to enforce that control, right? And one is within your direct control, right? So if I own a, a, a state, right? If I own this estate over here, right? That is a right that is granted to me by a state, right? No, no, no. But, the state doesn't the, guarantee the property possession. rights. No, no, hang on, hang on. The state doesn't guarantee property rights. The state exists only through its violation of property rights. You can't rely on the state to guarantee your property because they will take your property by force. And there is actually, I mean, you know, in America, there's no legal right to protect you. There's no legal right to protect your property. And uh, so, no, the state is, is not at all a guarantor of property. The state exists through its violation of property rights in the form of taxation. Okay, well, the state is literally the arbiter of property rights. They they grant deeds mm -hmm. to property. They they maintain a military and police force. They maintain a military and police force that uh, that that is is absolutely necessary to maintain the social relationships between individuals. So that why these why rights why is it why is it hang on why is it absolutely necessary, boy? That, that's like somebody saying, well, you know, we have to have slaves. Otherwise, there's no possible way that the uh, crops will be picked. We, we, you, know, you want cotton, you got to have slaves. It's like, no, you get rid of slavery, you get a whole new way of picking cotton, which is eventually giant machines and, and all of that. So I don't, you know, just because something has existed and has claimed dominance over a particular modality of human interaction like property rights doesn't mean that that's the way it has to be forever, no matter what. 
Well, I mean, I, you're very I, I conservative. Don't dis- I'm telling you that <laughs> very right wing. Very well, well. This is the way it's always been. So it's the way it's always got to be. I'm, I'm not saying it's the way it's always been. It's the way it's always got to be. What I'm saying is that private property rights are a a, a system of civil rights. They're civil liberties. This is like fu- fundamental to the ideas of liberalism. Right. The idea of private property rights is a is a legal contract between the members of that society mediated by the state. It's not a simple possession. It is actually a legal system that is under the protection of a state without a state. Right. With, with, without a state institution, if you have private property, you then are the de facto state. If you have if you are the person maintaining the the uh, the monopoly of force over the given territory to control your resources, you have now become the state in the absence of a state. Right. This is what monarchy was. Right. Now, wait, are you saying that, wait, that, are you that, saying that, that a private, that private hang on, private property are you saying I don't understand this at all? And I think we're going to have to move on because here's the thing, man. If you want to have discussions about this stuff, you got to define your terms ahead of time. You got to tell me what is a state. Uh, I even asked you for the different difference between, uh, you know, your personal property and the larger property category. And I, I couldn't get anything out of that. Let's move on to another one. I'm happy to have this conversation, but you, you got to start off with a definition of terms because you're just charging in and saying, well, you know, if you're a private property owner, uh, that's you, you, you're effectively a de facto state in your own property. It's like, no, you're not. Uh, <laughs> so you don't have the monopoly to initiate the use of force, like if, uh, you know, in your own property. The moral rules don't change on your property versus something else. So let's move on to another question. I would say just get your uh, definitions. Definitions is so important when it comes to debating these kinds of ideas. And I, I just feel like I'm, I've spent 10 minutes chasing definitions, and uh, that gets kind of boring after a while. So, uh, you know, just work on the definitions. Shoot me an email. It's on the website at freedomain.com, and we'll pick it up from there. But uh, I just I, I hate playing catch up on definitions all the time. So if we have another question, that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, next one this is also a VC question from Exilla. Uh, I think it's related to the debate. Exilla, are you there? Yes. I need to look at my question. I think it was about Vosh. And uh, actually, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I worked for a small construction business and I had to, and, and it's in the United States and we had to closely look at the IRS guidelines for subcontractors versus employees. It just so happens that in new construction, like building cookie cutter homes, that the majority of the business for the, for just the market happens to be dealt with subcontractors and you have some six figure to multi-million dollar companies where they have very, very few employees and might be like one, two, maybe 10, you know, everybody by name, you know, their birthdays, but the subcontractors, you might have 50 to hundreds of them. And I was asking you, where do you think the cont- the continuum between those two uh, lie where you're going to say, I don't have a business now because I have only subcontractors because I don't have employees. Do you get where I'm Yeah, no. From so, yeah, the, the, the distinction is going to lie when someone tells you that you should put your own economic theories into practice and you don't want to. That's when you're going to start creating this kind of distinction, uh, just to be perfectly... <laughs> perfectly clear you know it would be like me saying well peaceful parenting is the way to go which is something i've been saying since long before i even became a father my daughter's now 11 and uh, i hit my child right and and somebody said well you know you've been talking about this peaceful parenting you might want to you might want to do it in your own home. And I said, no, no, no. But you see, peaceful parenting is, is only when you have more than one child. Uh, so it doesn't, you know, doesn't account when you only have one child. It's like, well, isn't right, 
the right thing to do no matter how many kids you have? And isn't this way of organizing yourself economically the right thing to do no matter how many employees or contractors or this or that you have? So, uh, yeah. That's, uh, I think that's the best. Now, it's a little unfair here because Vosh isn't here to uh, snark in my ear about this kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I, th I think that's, that's pretty clear. If somebody told me there was a way to put my theories into practice in my daily life, I'd, I'd be thrilled about it. I wouldn't create this arbitrary distinction and say, well, that's for other companies. It's for other things, right? So do we have another question? Yeah, our next one comes from First Amender. Uh, let's see. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, like, one thing that I noticed about like your debate there, where you were talking about uh, Vosh, he he made a really really big like mistake, and I feel like you wait didn't, only you one. Didn't... Oh, just trash talking no, the guy well, who like, ain't here. Anyway, yeah, go on. No, it's a very big mistake. So, like, he basically said labor basically is you know creates wealth. But as we know, like as being libertarian capitalists, you and I, both capitalists, we know just because you have somebody labor does not necessarily mean that you create wealth. Like you yeah, can sorry, have just just to reinforce that point. Sorry, just to reinforce that point. So so first of all, in the in the, the the really boring to most people, but fascinating to me, history of economics, the labor theory of value was disproven within a couple of years of the publication yes. of Das Kapital. It was like no Correct. no economist takes well, it seriously. No it's been like over a hundred years yeah. since it's been taken seriously. So the idea that somebody still adheres to the labor theory of value is I mean, I, I hate to say it's ahistorical because that's not an argument, but it is kind of – it has been disproven so many times. And, yeah, of course, if like you think – like it's – sorry, it's a lot of work to dig a hole in the ground and fill it back in again, uh, particularly if you want to put the exactly. grass on top yeah. really nicely. Yeah. So you could spend an hour or two digging a hole, you know, five feet down into the ground, filling it back in again, brushing all the soil away and making it look just like it did before and – you haven't added anything of value, although you've worked very, very hard. So, yeah, labor alone doesn't produce uh, value. That's like saying that screaming produces songs. Well, I guess if you're into heavy metal, uh, maybe. Now for the <laughs> but, question. Yeah. Now the question for you, okay? Because that I, I, I just I, I that was the introduction. Now for the question. Uh, so, but you responded with saying, "Well, it is wealth is created through morality." Wouldn't you agree that it requires individual liberties as a prerequisite, but ultimately only result in just one piece of the puzzle? Having individual liberties doesn't necessarily create wealth. Well, okay. I think you're simplifying my answer just a smidge there because I did put a lot of examples in there of saying slaves worked harder than workers, but workers got paid more. So there must be some other magic source that is being introduced into the equation. Uh, and I didn't say that morality alone. I said that uh, morality, so for instance, the moral crusade to get rid of slavery produced the conditions for uh, the Industrial Revolution. And um, so morality is it's necessary, yeah, but not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient for there to be wealth. In other words, it creates the condition yeah. wherein the pursuit of wealth is good. But listen, this is something that people don't hugely understand. And I remember reading about this. In a, I think the book was called The Undercover Economist, which was like, I don't know, like 20 years ago or something like that. It was a really, really great piece in the book. And it had a really important part in, in my life, which is this guy said, oh, everybody talks about maximizing profit, maximizing GDP and so on. But no economist says that you have to do that. And I'll give you an example. So I took time off from my business career, about 18 months, maybe closer to two years. 
And I, I left the company that I'd co-founded. And, and listen, I don't want to sound all kind of braggy or whatever. This isn't even humble brag, right? But the, the, the new owners of the company were begging for me to stay because I built the software to begin with. I'd been involved in the business for a long time. And I knew all the customers. I had a lot of value. And they offered me like $150,000 a year. This is like close to 20 years ago now. Uh, $150,000 a year to work three days a week. And I'm like, no, I won't because I'd much rather rely on donations and be slandered on Wikipedia <laughs> or at least lied about on Wikipedia. <laughs> so, uh, so that is um, uh, th that was sort of my, my approach at the time. And I took that time off. I had some savings and I took that time off and I ended up writing two novels. Uh, and, um, you know, I went from making fairly good coin to being below the poverty line in terms of my income. Now, is that bad for the economy? Well, no, because the economy doesn't mean that you have to work. The economy doesn't mean that you have to maximize GDP. You can if you want, and, and you can go and work all the time if you want, and you can not, you know, you can save like crazy, and or you can go make a lot of money and blow it like Nick Cage and Johnny Depp or whoever blew their money or whatever happened, right? So this aspect of the economy is really important. No one is, no economist is going to say, well, it's bad for you to quit your job and write novels. Like that, okay, oh, did that lower the GDP? Well, I guess it did, but so what? What the hell is the point of maximizing the GDP or maximizing your income or maximizing profitability? It's all about having choices. I had the choice to continue working because of the free market. I had the choice to quit because I'd made some money from the free market. And so just as, to tie it back into your question, you need a moral universe where there are property rights and a reduction in violence in order to even have the potential to generate wealth as a society uh, I think it ends up kind of like it's yeah. one domino that I, hits I, I the next agree, one. And I agree with that. I, I mean, I I discovered that a long time ago, sitting there reading Milton Friedman and Rothbard and a whole bunch of other ding textbooks that, and a lot of it is like very heavy. So it's like, yeah, you're you're barking up the just the the, the same exact tree. Yeah, there's no much. logic. The people say like the logic of capitalism is to do this. That it's like no 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 come on. The logic of capitalism doesn't yeah. exist. It's free will. It's free choice. This mechanistic, deterministic view of the universe that the only reason we have a modern society is the planets of weird coincidences aligned and magically produced all of this new stuff. It's like, no, there were particular choices that people made about the morals they argued for, the virtues they stood for. They pushed back against mercantilist power, against the tyranny of the medieval unions, which were completely crippling to the economy to the point where like, you couldn't even be like a blacksmith without apprenticing uh, under a blacksmith for like seven years to learn probably about six months worth of material. Uh, it was just, and you had, you were, you had to do the job that your father did. You were just locked in. You were a serf, half enslaved to the land. Oh, yeah. You were bought yeah. and sold with the land. I mean, it was not a free market yeah, situation yeah, yeah. and people by, fought by, for the free in, market. For increasing the amount of choices, it outputs to a, like a greater, to a greater society by, imp by, by uh, um, creating more choices for people. And so like, I guess like you went straight towards the morality thing, which I get it. I do. I understand like the, but like, don't you think that it would have been better to be like, well, I think that it's choices, not necessarily that morality. Now does morality increase the amount of choices? Yeah, absolutely. But then wouldn't you just say, well, it's choices that make it, not morality. Well, but choices is such a subjective term. If I start talking about property rights and the non-aggression principle, that's more specific. Because, look, 
you know what choices mean to a leftist. I'm, I don't know if he's a leftist. I don't know what the hell he is anymore, right? No, but no choices, no choices to the left. No, you got a point there. No choices mean something very, very different, which is to say, hey, man, I don't have the choice to go to Harvard if I don't get free money from the government. It's like, so So choice is one of these unfortunately yeah, yeah, yeah. subjective, uh, uh, subjectivist terms that uh, I'd like yeah. to be a bit more precise. I guess it's like you want to give people more choices, but then at the same time, without trying to re revoke other people's choices and so i think that's where like a lot of uh a lot of capitalists and a lot of like socialists they tend to differ but now but that. you know choices and morality are not the same thing obviously you know that right i mean you can choose to kill someone to rape Certainly, someone no, no, you know no, not, I, yeah, these yeah. uh they're, you know yeah, i don't want those choices same, around yeah. too much but being that like being that like let's say if you murder somebody steal something from somebody you you lie you cheat you know things like this you can say that, okay, yeah, that's the individual choice of, but that is at the revoking of the autonomy of another individual. And so you can come to a conclusion that somebody who had their goods stolen is not going to be able to make uh, choices regarding those goods. You revoked that person's ability of those choices for your ability to own. To, to ownership so you can come to a conclusion just without even discussing morals that it's that it's effectively wrong okay well i've got a whole book on ethics called universally preferable behavior a rational proof of secular ethics which goes into this in more detail but let's move on to another question or two yes, if we have sorry. them uh, really really appreciate thank the you. conversation thank you yeah all right so firebird would like to know, uh how do you feel about Oh, I hate to, this is like stutter, stutter madness. Can you just try that question again? You'll need to speak up a bit so it doesn't keep cutting you out. Oh, sorry about that. Um, Firebird asks, uh, how do you feel about religion and beliefs and deities? Are they obsolete for our time and age? Yeah, it's a complicated question. So there, there's two aspects to this answer. So the first aspect is from a rational, objectivist, empirical, or objective philosophical standpoint, the existence of deities cannot be supported. And I even go further than that to say that, that the non-existence of deities is, is proven. I mean, I've, got a whole, I've got a book called Against the Gods, available for free at freedomain.com forward slash books. So from a philosophical standpoint, the existence of uh, deities can't be, can't be supported. Now, that having been said, the fact-value dichotomy is really, really important in the modern world. And what I mean by that is, and this goes back to a, an argument that Dennis Prager and others have made, it goes all the way back to uh, pre-Augustinians, which is, wh where are you going to get your morals from? So if you say to a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, you say, well, why is murder wrong? You say, well, it's right there in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Actually, Thou shalt not murder. It's a little bit different. But so, so it's like God said it, and God is the moral law, and that's it, right? That's, I mean, there's lots of complicated stuff around it, but it's kind of beginning and the end of the discussion. That's the alpha and the omega of where the moral law comes from. Now, if you take universal consciousness out of the equation, if you take God out of the equation, where the hell are you, sorry, where the heck, for the Christian listeners, where the heck are the morals going to come from? They don't exist in nature. You cannot get an ought from an is, according to Hume. In other words, the fact that you strangle a guy and he dies, well, you say to the Christian, why is that wrong? Well, God says don't murder. You say to the Darwinist, the secularist, and so on, why is that wrong? You know, he might say, well, it's inefficient to stability of society, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, what do you say about the people who disagree? Well, the Christian says you're going to hell or you're certainly not going to heaven. And what do you say to the guy who can get away with stealing? What do you, what do you say to him? 
What do you say to the guy who can get away? If you say to the guy who wants to get away with stealing, if you're a Christian, you say, well, you can't because God's always watching and God sees it and God records it. And it's going into the book and some Peter's going to wave his quill at you at the pearly gates and you're not going to get into heaven. So that's why you don't do it. But if you can get away with it, and you remember with Vosh, he was talking about it's economically productive and, you know, the, 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 um, it, it builds wealth, colonialism. And he say, like, I'm not applying any moral standards to this conversation. Now, for a, a Christian, a religious person, the idea of not applying any moral standards to a conversation about theft would be kind of incomprehensible. But if you're anti-theistic and a pure secularist, you generally tend towards Nietzschean-style moral nihilism or the will to power. And this, of course, is a lot of what the left does, is this will to power. And I can't get to uh, the existence of a deity philosophically, but I find a universe of no ethics to be revolting, which is, again, I know it's not an argument, but we can't be mammals. We can only be inhuman, right? We're human or we're inhuman. We're human or we're anti-human. We're good or we're evil. We can't be amoral because amoral leads you directly to evil. And the reason why good and evil exist for us is that we have the capacity to universalize our choices into a particular ethos. Um, the lion doesn't say that the zebra owes the lion its life because of some collective good of lionness or something like that or mammalian life. So we do have this unique capacity to abstract our rules into ethical concepts that are universal and binding. And we're either going to use that for good or we're going to use that for evil. And the problem, of course, is that if, you, if there isn't a God, then the universals are not founded in philosophy but in theology, which can be very dangerous. as 300 years of religious warfare and over 1,000 years of warfare, of religious warfare in the Muslim world and in the Jewish world and so on. It's, it's a big problem. So to me, the big challenge was, okay, if I can't get to ethics through God and I can't stand and find it re repulsive and wrong and evil to have an amoral Darwinian Nietzschean style will to power universe, how on earth can I get ethics? So I did write this book and you can get a short version of this. It's at essentialphilosophy.com. The book is free on YouTube and, and MP3. You can read it online. Uh, you can buy a copy too if you want. Um, I came up with a theory of ethics that doesn't require a god, doesn't require a government for enforcement. And uh, it's now been going on close to 15 years and it's holding strong. So um, you, you should check that out. All right. User Capra wants to ask not in V. How was your day? Uh, my day? Oh, gosh. What can I talk about? Um, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was, I didn't sleep too well. I was a little tired today. And uh, I, I don't normally have more than two cups of coffee, but I had a third for this uh, debate just to get my gears uh, uh, up and going. So uh, it, was, it was an okay day. Uh, I would give it a six. Uh, and usually I'm I'm like a, an eight to a nine in terms of like good days. So thank you. How was your day? Oh, mine was good. Good. Yeah. I had some interesting debate. I was in. All right. Let's do, see. Do you have a question? Oh, is there a question out there? For me. Let me see. Yeah. Um, uh, so we've seen a couple of these. Might as well just ask, what are your thoughts on Nick Fuentes? Well, I would talk about so the the Groper is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. I've never heard it pronounced. Is it Groper? 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 
I'm not sure. Grouper fish? I don't know what it is. Listen, there are legitimate and strong points to be made against what's referred to as conservative ink with regards to its um, lack of criticism of mass immigration, its lack of criticism of the fact that uh, mass immigration into the U.S. I, I sort of dug up these statistics for a part of the debate with Vosh that never materialized, so I might as well jump in and uh, milk them now. But um, it's, uh, it's really bad. You know, I, I, because I grew up poor, I, I really do have a lot of sympathy for the poor and recognize how much help they do generally need to sort of get out of, of poverty. And uh, it's, a, it's a very, very big deal. So here's a, here's a quote. The typical high school dropout earns about $25,000 annually. This is from a couple of years ago. According to census data, immigrants admitted in the past two decades lacking a high school diploma have increased the size of the low-skilled workforce by roughly 25%. As a result, the earnings of this particularly vulnerable group dropped by between $800 and $1,500 each year. Each year. Now, you know, when you're making 2500 bucks. You know, that's seven, six, seven, eight percent of your income. Uh, and that's not even counting the additional taxes of the immigrants who are very high on consumption of government services, government goods, food stamps, welfare, subsidized housing, and so on. And not to mention, of course, um, uh, education. So I think that there's a lot of criticisms, criticisms to be made. And Nick, of course, is a, is a young man. Uh, people forget that he's, what, he's only a couple of years older or a year or two older than David Hogg, who himself has some, uh, some maturing and some seasoning to do, I think that he's gone for shock value too much, you know, and just sort of professional advice. I think he said some outrageous and, and offensive things. Now, I know that people have said the same thing about me, so I'm so willing to accept that. But I've always tried to ground what I say in expert interviews and science and sources and, and all of that. And there's some things that he said that I just I can't countenance. I don't really want to get into the details. It doesn't really particularly matter. But... Um, uh, that's uh, so. Those are my those are my particular uh, thoughts. Uh, and um, let's move on to the next question. All right, Yukimaru. Back to to organize to stop the rise of internet censorship. I just missed the beginning of that. If you could do that again, please. Oh, sorry. Um, what is the most effective way for people who love freedom of speech to organize to stop internet censorship? Well, you know, here's. <sighs> This is this is the big challenge of, of, of the age, right? I mean, because we have fi finally we have free speech. Like finally we have free speech where you don't have to own a newspaper or a television station to have an impact on the world stage. Finally, we have no gatekeepers. We can all talk with each other, and that of course is enormously alarming to the powers that be. It's like it's one thing to have your rights on paper. It's like oh wait, they have an internet. They can talk to each other now. Oh, that's no good. So, the strategy of the left. And this started all the way back with Andrew Anglin and so on. So the strategy of the left has been to make people so toxic. Uh, I don't mean they are that way, although maybe they are sometimes in terms of like intellectual respectability or whatever. But toxic, of course, is not an argument. But to make people so unsavory that what happens is when they get threatened with deplatforming that people say, oh, well, you know, I don't want to be seen to be defending that person's viewpoint. Therefore, I will not defend that person's right to free speech. And, you know, I went out there with, with Alex Jones and with, with other people to really um, defend uh, people's right to, to speak as a whole. Have I always been perfect at it? No. Some stuff escapes my attention. Some stuff slips past the radar. And sometimes I'm just really, really busy. But I'll usually put out a tweet for this kind of stuff at least. We just need to be able to stand 
for people who are very much against our sensibilities and say they have the right to speak. You know, communists have the right to speak. Uh, fascists have the right to speak. Even Nazis, they have the right to make their case. However repellent and abhorrent we find it, it's got to be out there. Because if these ideas are out there and we censor them, they're just going to go underground. It gives legitimacy to this sense of persecution. And uh, it's really a terrible, terrible idea to censor all but the most extreme forms of immediate incitements to violence, right? So I'm, I'm down with, you know, you, you really shouldn't be out there on the back of a truck screaming to burn this mofo down in the middle of a race riot because that's not particularly good. You shouldn't be encouraging violence against others. You shouldn't be encouraging the destruction of property. You shouldn't be out there using your rhetorical gifts to add to the uh, violations of persons and property so endemic in the world. So... Uh, but yeah, uh, outside of that, uh, I am very much a free speech absolutist, and all should be permitted, all should be debated, and the marketplace of ideas should be the way to go. But of course, because we've been raised in government schools, we don't know how to debate, so unfortunately, we're just falling back on knee-jerk censorship. All right. Uh, let's see here. That's not good. Okay. That's not uh, good. Oh, now I want to know, but that's fine. It's your show. You sure you want to know? No, if it's not Do good, it. I, I will trust your judgment on the things I cannot see. Or if I did see, they might turn my eyes bloodshot. <laughs> All right. The next one. This is a good one. It's from uh, Mr. Superguy. Uh, he wants to ask in voice, are you here? Uh, I'm here. Uh, is he there? Superguy? Hello. 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 Hey. Cool. You're a little quiet. Uh, am I? Yeah. All right. Give me one second. Uh, All right. Is that better? Uh, it was fine to begin with, so let's just jump in. All right. Perfect. Uh, so how do you feel about uh, guaranteeing a floor for the standard of living through government policy? Well, that's pretty easy. Does it violate property rights, does it require the initiation of the use of force? Uh, I mean, certainly it would require um, taxes. Well, that would be the initiation of the use of force, so no, I'm against it morally. Okay. Uh, so what, 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 what's your, like, political ideology? Are you, are you kind of an ANCAP? Uh, well, I mean, the word ideology is a smidge prejudicial, uh, the consistent and universal application of the non-aggression principle demands a stateless society. And it looks very weird to people. I'm not saying to you necessarily, but it does look very weird to people. But so what? You know, the universal application of the principles of gravity results in a sun-centered solar system, which makes people feel dizzy if they believe that the Earth was fixed in the center of the universe. So what? The fixed application of the constancy of the speed of light produces weird relativistic time travel slowdowns uh, at the very fastest speeds of, of existence and uh, energy being converted into mass when you approach 186,000 miles per second. So what? Freaky things shouldn't uh, scare us with the universality of principles. And the fact that society looks very different when you look through the lens of the non-aggression principle, it should be pushed back against because, you know, radical news of social ideas have killed a lot of people throughout human history. But 
um, I really can't picture after many, many years of thinking about it and puzzling about it, interviewing about it, reading about it, writing about it, talking about it, debating about it. I really can't see how a universal application of the non-aggression principle is going to produce anything other than the best and freest human society possible. Okay. Um, all right, that's fine. All right, thanks. Okay. <laughs> we'll just move on to the next question then. So Fred asks, uh, do you think that functional post-scarcity will ever emerge through the free market, a.k.a. goods are so cheap they cost pennies while retaining high quality? Oh, boy, we'd already be there if it wasn't for regulation. We'd already hyper-regulation, right? I mean, like the crazy kind of regulation where you can't open a factory in America and so now everyone's dependent on Chinese prescription drugs that may not come <laughs> relatively soon. I'll, I'll sort of give you a tiny example of this, right? So post-scarcity, we'd already be there. This is what's so frustrating is seeing the road less traveled. So here's a, here's a tiny example. So in the post-Second World War period, there were significant numbers of regulations and controls in the American market system. Now, it's been estimated that the escalation, the increase in regulations and controls in the market system in America has cost two to three percentage points of GDP growth every single year. Now, because this is cumulative and compound, right now, right now, we would have incomes well over $150,000, $175,000 a year if everything else had remained the same, but we just hadn't had all of this massive increase in regulation. And maybe some of the regulations would have shifted, like we don't have to regulate the int int a, um, a radio anymore, maybe we regulate something else. But if the amount of regulation had remained constant, and that's not utopia, right? That's just not dystopia, right? That's not utopia to say, can we just keep the amount of regulation in the post-war period roughly about the same? We'd already been a post in a post-scarcity society. We would already be making $150,000, $200,000 a year net. Um, and, and so we'd already been, a, this is what's so frustrating about the world is we're kind of dragging ourselves along, wounded by massive debt and deficits and inflation and QE dumping of fiat currency toilet paper onto an increasingly fragile and scattered marketplace and the creation of, you know, you say, well, unemployment is low. And it's like, well, yeah, and some of that is good and some of that is just debt. Some of that is just government borrowing. Some of that is increased government employment and so on. So we would already be there. Even if just one tiny factor in the American economy and other economies had remained constant, we'd already be in a post-scarcity society. We're dragging ourselves along, barely able to keep wages at a steady level, while debt opens up a chasm underneath us because of all of this crazy regulation and control and, and, and all of that. It's, uh, it's, just, it's just horrendous. So, yeah, absolutely. All right. And road trip like you to talk about, you know, just, uh, they say that that alone is I open how big companies actually. <laughs> Sorry, just le lean a little. You're going to need to deep throat this mic, my friend. And just give oh. it another try if you could. Thanks. I'm so sorry. Uh, road trip asks, uh, if you could talk about the Pareto distribution, they say that, uh, that alone is eye opening to how big companies actually work. And that sure. not everyone provides the same value in any work. Yeah. Now, uh, so the Pareto distribution is more of an 80-20 rule. The one I was talking about earlier, which I have had uh, countless emails telling me to, to get right, and I appreciate that. It's good to be corrected, of course. 
But the uh, Pareto distribution, and it's funny too, not to, again, I don't want to sort of bag on Vosh because he's not here to defend himself, but he did sort of say, well, there's no magic source. There's no, you know, and I used magic as an analogy at the beginning. Like, it is kind of like magic. Like, like how, do you, how does someone sit down and write the song Yesterday, right? Like, like the Beatles, one of the most famous and recorded songs in like 6,000 different versions. And I'm not even kidding. There are 6,000 different versions of that song. It's kind of magic. Like uh, uh, Freddie Mercury sitting in a bath in Munich and the, the song Crazy Little Thing Called Love pops into his head and he jots it down and, you know, it goes on to sell a bazillion records or whatever, right? And, um, you know, David Bowie and Queen are jamming one night and they end up coming up with uh, um, a great song uh, Under Pressure. Uh, and, uh, and, and so it is a kind of like magic. And the reason we say magic is not because it's incomprehensible or it's genuinely magical. We just don't know how it happens. So how are some people so amazingly productive? And Vosh did seem to, in fact, he did very much decry this idea. He said, oh, it's the grand person of, of, uh, of the economy and, you know, that there are these individuals who are stupendously productive. And then later on, and he did, you know, as I mentioned in the debate, he did actually say there are some people who are phenomenally productive. And uh, so, again, I, I, I always have a problem with people who seem to win the point and then switch to another point when it wins that point and they don't seem to notice. Like if I'd made a big contradiction by that, like that in, in the debate, I would have liked to, I would have stopped and said, well, wait a minute, you're right. I did say that earlier. I said there wasn't any big pro- phenomenally productive people. Now I'm saying that there are. I do need to resolve this. But, you know, he just, just, just keep on moving, man. <laughs> did you hit something on the road? I heard a thump. No, just keep driving. Just drive. So uh, the, uh, the Pareto principle, as I mentioned, is this, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing thing, and it explains why free markets are so productive and why socialist economies, uh, centrally planned economies are so destructive. Well, there's two things. So the important thing to remember, and this goes back to an old von Mises argument, that price is a giant free supercomputer available to everyone on where to allocate their resources. So if there's some community that they want to build 5,000 new houses, they're going to bid up the price of labor. They're going to bid up the price of lumber and, and drywall and piping and electricity cords and all that. And so people are going to want to sell there. It just allocates goods based upon demand. And if you don't have the free market mechanism of price, you never, ever know where to allocate resources. It becomes political. It becomes corrupt, not just because people are political and corrupt, although they are, but because there's no other way to do it. If the market mechanism of supply and demand is incredible, information called price, which doesn't just exist in the present, but exists. People bet on the price of pork bellies two years from now based upon whatever they think is going to happen to the weather or or the political situation in China or whatever it is, right? So price is this incredible mechanism that is not just the price of goods, but the price of, you know, the value of future productivity of a company in terms of stock prices uh, and it's uh, the, the future value of money. Right, so because interest rates are the price of money, and when interest rates go up and down, it tells you how much people are saving, which is deferred spending. I mean, it's really, really complicated. Without price, there's absolutely no way, no way whatsoever. Peter Joseph, notwithstanding, there's no way to allocate resources in any remotely efficient way. The price mechanism, in its constantly changing, non-centrally managed supply and demand, present, past, present, and future. There's even a price for the past based upon how valuable an antique is. So without price, you can't do it. And without the Pareto principle, wherein the square root of people produce half the value. I mean, it's just wild. Uh, the square root of all the people in a productive enterprise produce half the value. And so, you know, this example I use, 10,000 people, 100 of them producing half the value. But they only produce half the value if they have an incentive to do so. If everyone gets paid the same then you lose close to half the value of the company 
just by not letting, by not incentivizing those people to use their weird magic sauce to produce just so much more value. And I, I sort of used an example. So when I was in the software field, I wrote a program that adjusted every aspect of our software based upon client specifications from the from the tables to the queries to the forms to the query by forms to the reports uh, even to the web interface it would change everything you just you create one script it would go through and change everything in the database which would normally would take weeks or months to do and to check and it produced a whole report so i loved i loved programming and i loved doing programs that affect programs themselves like this meta programming is like to me the trippiest stuff and the most fun stuff to do so that was just enormously productive it was an enormously productive thing for me to do i have a very good capacity or ability to negotiate with hostile people with and so when people got mad at our company as they inevitably did from time to time i was just really good at going in there calming things i just it's just a magic source weird thing that I've always have, you know, like that guy in Stand By Me who got killed because he was really good at resolving disputes. Well, hopefully I don't end up like that. But it's just this weird magic source that I was able to to put out. And um, if there's no incentive, then you just don't do it. And you just, it just doesn't come into being. It just does. Like if, if there's no way for musicians to make money, you'll get hobbyists and there'll still be music around. There just won't be big live shows. There just won't be the kind of cool stuff that goes on. So, you know, freedom and incentive and meritocracy and property and contract is all required for this magic source of the Pareto principle to create this staggering amount of value that there's no other way. Oh, yeah, he was blaming capitalism for bad government schools, right? So I pointed out how the government was producing bad like people with no economic value and uh, he was immediately like well it's the textbook companies who sell to the government it's like no 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 come on <laughs> it's the government it's the government all right uh another question let's do one or two more yeah, so um during the uh debate that you had i thought it was really interesting so i'm actually i guess there's two things the user has a question here then i would like you myself to comment on something because i found it really interesting when sure. you talked about south korea um, and you were saying that South Korea's success compared to North Korea, that's because of the free market there. And he he seemed to basically say, no, that's because of fascism. First, I, I just wonder if you could comment on that. I thought that was really interesting. But also the user wants to know, how do you define fascism? Yeah, so, okay. I mean, I can do this one real, real briefly. Uh, so um, co communism is government control of the means of production. Fascism is private control, nominal control of the means of production, but government's control of economic policy and government controlling the currency and government uh, directing the capitalists to do. So a sort of typical example is in, uh, in the Soviet Union, when there was a war, the government controlled the munitions factories directly. In uh, under Nazism, when there was a war, there was nominal private ownership of the corporations, but the government directed the war policy and paid the corporations from the public purse. So where there are there's nominal private ownership but government control, that's fascism. When there is direct government control of uh, the means of production, that's that's communism. Now, with regards to South Korea, okay, let's uh, let's have a look at this. Uh, so South Korea. Ah, oh, let's see here. Yeah, see, this is um, the idea that, that South Korea is some giant... Um, it's the 29th freest economy in the world. 
and in, in within its region, it's the sense it's the seventh freest economy in the world, right? So um, let's see here. South Korea's economic free freedom score is seventy two point three, making its economy the twenty ninth freest in the twenty nine twenty nineteen index. Uh, its overall score has decreased by 1.5 points because of sharply lower scores for judicial effectiveness and a tax burden and declines in monetary freedom and labor freedom. South Korea is ranked seventh among 43 countries in the Asia-Pacific Asia region, and its overall score is above the regional and world averages. Okay, so, you know, that's pretty good, right? I mean, it's, um, it's got almost $40,000 per capita. And its public debt is less than 40% of GDP, which is not great. But, of course, compared to something like uh, uh, Japan, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty fantastic. So South Korea, when he's saying it's, like, not part of the free market, it's like, you know, there are, what, 300-plus countries and it's in the top 10%. That's not, uh, that's not too bad. Now let's look at North Korea, <laughs> right? So uh, North Korea uh, Economic Freedom Index. Mm, let's see here. Uh, is it even ranked? Um, is it even? Uh, let's see here. Yeah, I don't. I. I uh, oh yeah, here we go. Oh god, <laughs> oh it's so sad. Okay, uh, it really is. It, it's god awful, right? So, ah, North Korea's economic freedom score is what was the other one? Seventy three or so? It's five point nine, making it the least free. <laughs> least three of the 180 economies measured in the 2019 index. So, I mean, come on. I mean, we've got 180 countries, South Korea's 29th, and North Korea is dead last, and he's trying to make some bloody equation between these two. I mean, come on. This is, uh, I mean, I get, you know, people get ego invested. He's a young man. He wants to win. His testosterone, for whatever it is denied by his haircut, is still free-flowing through uh, his body. But come on. I mean, to trying to equate these two, uh, is um, I mean it's 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 ridiculous. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's. Does that help with the the answer? Yeah, I think so. Um, so I I try to keep my own thoughts on this, but one thing I will say is just that I I find these kinds of things are really interesting. Uh, there's a difference. People look at a snapshot, like what it is now. Look at the correlation. I think it's more beneficial to look at where policies were in the past. So I think that if you look at South Korea's um, policies back in the 1990s the freedom index been around since 95 i'm sure they would have been ranked much higher i'm sorry i just i i'm totally rude of me i just got distracted by a chat message could you just repeat that point again yeah i was just saying that i, I find with this kind of stuff it's uh it's normally more indicative of policy effects if you look at what the policies were over the long term rather than where they are now and i'm sure if you look at south korea back in the 90s they were ranked higher than they are now Yes, that that certainly is true. Uh, that it, that is the case, and you're you're right. This this process of of philosophy is very important. You know, I mean, a smoker is not of ill health until he is of ill health. But it's the trajectory that really counts. And this is what I I, I was trying to get with the debate with Bosch. I was trying to get a sense of like this this flow through, right? Because I I did personally find it really frustrating. Because, you know, the Industrial Revolution created a lot of wealth. And so the question is, well, what's the source of human wealth? So I tried to talk about the factors that led to the Industrial Revolution, right? Free markets in, in land, free markets in contracts, uh, uh, and private property enforcement in, in contracts and, and all of that, and reduction in violence, I, end of slavery. Like, I put all of these things in as the sort of preconditions, a lot of the moral arguments, and then you get 
the creation of wealth that's characterized by the industrial revolution. And then he said, and I'm not paraphrasing him here, he said that the cause of wealth was the industrial revolution. It's like, no, <laughs> no, no, that's, that's when the wealth was being created. We're looking at the cause of the wealth being created, not the process of the effect. And so trying to sort of push it back to beforehand is, uh, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get there. And, you know, it was really frustrating because, you know, maybe there'd be a different argument, but it's really tautological to say the source of the increase of wealth is the increase of wealth. Um, <laughs> that really doesn't answer anything. So did you have another question about that or? Uh, no, that's, uh, um, that's all I got. So, um, I just want to let you know, uh, we did pin down the Libertarian Roundtable for March 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Does that work for you? I would have to check my schedule, but I'd be very surprised if I was scheduled that far out. So uh, just shoot me an email and we'll sort it out. All right. Uh, so last question here. Um, we've well, actually you got time for two more. Uh, depends how long they are, but uh, let's let's give okay. it a shot. Wesley asks, is it ever okay to defend yourself from the cops? Well, no, I, I would generally, uh, you know, this, they call it street litigation. Um, you know, they are, they, they have the legal right, they have the weaponry, and they have the sympathy, of course, of the general population. And so uh, I would suggest uh, go, go with them. I would strongly advise, in fact, I would make it a very emphatic uh, a case, uh, go, go with the police peacefully and uh, litigate um, in the courtroom where, where it belongs and is trying to secure your freedom. I think there's very good arguments to not talk to the cops because they're allowed to lie to you. You're not allowed to lie to them in most jurisdictions. So, you know, you go, go quietly, uh, get, get yourself a lawyer and take it from there. But um, uh, it is uh, – and, and listen, remember that the cops, you know, they're not uh, – they're not voluntarists in general, right? I mean, I've had some calls with some very tortured people in the government who are voluntarists or became voluntarists and have a trouble with their career choices now. But, you know, cops do a lot of good in, in the world. They do keep a lot of criminals off the street. And given that recidivism is very high and nobody knows how to fix criminals, so to speak, that is an important job. They do believe, of course, that they're doing good in society. And again, they're right about it in a lot of ways. The fact that, and I wrote about this like 15 years ago, so um, this is not a new argument of mine. People are heavily propagandized, and you need to be aware of that. It's not their fault that they've been lied to so consistently and so universally by their culture. Uh, it is, you know, extracting people from the matrix is is a tricky business. Getting people out of, you should, when it's back on, I think next month, um, the, the movie Hoaxed is going to be back, hoaxedmovie.com. I have a whole thing in there about Plato's Cave. Getting people out of the land of delusions out of the state-constructed shadow land that they live in is a very delicate process. And it is a challenging process. And it's really, really important to have sympathy. You know, there's an old phrase, I grew up Christian, and there was an old phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. And when you are dealing with somebody like a cop who you may have significant disagreements with, you're dealing with somebody like Vosh, uh, who I obviously have significant disagreements with, and I don't mean this to sound condescending because Lord knows there's things that I have illusions about and still need to be peeled back from time to time. So this is a sort of communistic human process. But you just think of your own life. And if you just had not happened to run into particular arguments 
or particular perspectives or a particular book or had a particular crazy friend who started dragging you out of the matrix. If you had just slipped through the cracks, as most people do, you'd be on the other side of that table and you'd be arguing that the Russia hoax was real and Trump made fun of disabled people. I mean, you, you just would be for the most part. They're there, but for the grace of God, go you and I. And uh, please, please try and be as patient as possible. It doesn't mean beat your head against a wall for the rest of your life, but be be as patient as possible when dealing with people who've been uh, been propagandized. So, and I, I will say this, like, I mean, so with Vosh, it's a little different because, you know, he's been out there debating with people. He's been exposed to contrary ideas. So I could be a bit tougher with that. But uh, most people, um, divorcing them from their illusions is a very, very tricky and difficult business. So please, please, as much as you can, be uh, be patient with them and uh, go with the cops. Don't fight with the cops and uh, get yourself a good lawyer and hold your tongue. All right. <laughs> Let's do one more. Oh, two more. You right. One more? One more. All right. Last question then is from Fred. How can a free society manage the responsibility that comes with legalized vices such as drugs and gambling? Well, that's a great question. So, first of all, I refer you to fdrurl.com forward slash bomb in the brain. And the reason I do that is that I've done a whole series of presentations, including an interview with Dr. Vincent Felitti, who ran the Kaiser Permanente Health Study, that if you look at dysfunctions like drug addiction and gambling in particular, they arise fairly directly out of childhood abuse. I mean, take an example of one of the most famous gambling addicts in history was Fyodor Dostoevsky. And uh, his father was so abusive and so brutal that he was murdered by his own serfs for his alcoholism by they poured alcohol down his throat until he drowned in his own alcohol. And so I would say that once we fix parenting, once we fix childhood, which is why I brought this aspect in of childhood, and to his great credit, Vosh brought that back in again with, with regards to power disparities, and I really appreciated that. It was great. But if we can raise children peacefully and rationally, we don't hit them, we don't circumcise them, we don't abuse them, we don't neglect them. When we raise children in a peaceful and rational way, these addictions will largely dry up and blow away. I mean, you know, they may still happen. There'll be people who have brain tumors or, you know, whatever. They're just some really um, susceptible that way or whatever. But if you have peacefully raised children, it's sort of like, you know, when smallpox was really common and like a quarter or a third of the population would sometimes succumb and some would survive from smallpox. And you'd say, oh my gosh, how would a free society deal with smallpox. It's like, well, funnily enough, now that we've become a more free society, we have, I still have the scar. Do I still have the scar on my arm there from my smallpox inoculation when I was a kid? Uh, and um, now we don't have to worry about smallpox. And in the same way, peaceful parenting is an inoculation against most social dysfunctions, promiscuity, alcoholism, cigarette smoking, uh, drug addiction, um, uh, hyper stress, uh, and, and ill health, you know, I mean, child abuse can take up to 20 years off your lifespan if you don't deal with it, which is why I strongly suggest people deal with it, talk therapy or self-work or whatever it is that can help you to deal with the effects of that abuse. But once we start raising children peacefully and lovingly and productively and positively, we will end up with a world that is as strange to us and beautiful as today's world would be strange and beautiful to those from the Middle Ages, which was when parenting was much harsher and much, much worse. All right. Well, thanks so much for sticking around. Oh, my pleasure. Listen, thanks for great, great questions from your wonderful 
uh, audience, and I'm sure I had nothing but love and respect in the chat, uh, <laughs> as always, as usual. But I hope, you know, I hope the thing too, like, so people hear about me from unsavory sources like Cicopedia, and, you know, hopefully they then come by and say, okay, you know, he's he's got some interesting points. I may not agree, but, you know, he's not, you know, <laughs> he's not sucking the soul out of your children's belly buttons or something. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with everyone. Before before you head off, um, I, I, I am assuming I, I know what Wikipedia says because I've seen it on other sources. Would you like to respond briefly to that just to, like, dispel it? Because I know you've said it before on videos. I, oh, I've seen yeah, it, I mean, but... I mean, just very, very briefly, um, I'm not a white nationalist. Uh, I, I don't believe, I mean, different ethnicities is not violating the rule, the, the non-aggression principle and property rights and the rule of law should extend to and protect everyone. I'm not a fan of the welfare state. I am much more a fan of open borders in the absence of the welfare state, which is an old argument that goes back to Milton Friedman. And, um, you know, this, this cult stuff is nonsense. Uh, I encourage people to have honest conversations with their family, but I support people's right to disengage from abusive relationships where they can't be recovered or they can't be reformed, where you just, you should not spend the rest of your life being abused by anyone, whether it's a parent, an aunt, an uncle, or whoever, right? You should work your very best to connect with people and to try and minimize abuse. But if the abuse is relentless and you can't change it, you have the right and to, to leave. And it may, in fact, be a very good idea. I don't tell people what to do. I don't go around breaking up families and so on. I just support the right of people and remind them of their right in their short life to not have abusive lives, uh, abusive households. This whole like far right thing is nonsense. Um, uh, I've uh, consistently opposed uh, far right uh, fascism. I've had debates with fascists that have high, I'm highly oppositional to the fascist ideology. Oh gosh, what else? Uh, I've uh, done entire shows on the evils of Nazi Germany. I've done a show with a Jewish professor on the evils of the German economy and the German socialist model. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's just that's a typical. It's a communist tactic. I'm not including Bosch in this, of course, but it's a communist tactic to just call people you disagree with uh, racist and and Nazis. And I mean, this is just. Uh, it's a tragic, uh, tragically effective thing, although I think it's losing its power now. But I guess I, I appreciate the capacity or the chance to response. For those who are interested, um, I have uh, put together uh, some of the rebuttals to some of the more silly things that have said have been said about me. I should do more, and I, I, I will get around to it. But uh, fdrurl.com forward slash untruth. That's fdrurl.com. Uh, forward slash untruths. Uh, let me just make sure it's got the plural there. Uh, I can type. I really can. Uh, untruths. Is it plural? Yes, uh, untruths. So I hope that you will uh, check those out, and I appreciate the chance to uh, to talk about that stuff. All right. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. So we'll see you in March. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful, uh, well, I won't say rest of the weekend because it's 57 minutes here till the weekend is over. But thanks for the opportunity. A great pleasure. And um, I will talk to you guys again. If you like the show, freedomain.com forward slash donate is the, uh, is the place to go. Bye. All right, guys. So I'm going to uh, close up this channel. I'm going to be in chill chat if you guys want to hang out and discuss the debate and the AMA. Uh, you're welcome to hang on down there. Uh, if you'd rather discuss philosophy, religion, and politics in another chat, you're welcome to go there as well. So I'm going to move you guys down and clear out this channel. One sec.